Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm starting to think that members of Periphery have spent more time between my two podcasts than any other guests, and I am totally cool with that. Our guests today are Misha Mansoor, Mark Holcomb, and Jake Bowen, all guitar players from Periphery, all awesome dudes, all great guitar players. They just got off of a 10-day writing retreat for New Periphery which is really cool, actually. This is a long one, so let's just get into it. Mark, Jake, Misha, welcome. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thank you. So you guys have been writing. Oh, yeah. We have been writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just saw these guys. When were you guys here? A week ago? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I missed First time I missed in a them. year? Come back. Was that weird? Yeah. Why? It was just surreal. We don't go that long without seeing each other. Like Yeah. Like going like it's normally not more than like a few months at a time, and I mean it wasn't weird like it, like getting back together was just like it, it was like not a day had passed, but it just kind of sucks. It felt like really surreal, like when we all met up at the airport. I yeah. was just like I can't believe like I know you guys, but I haven't seen you in a long time. So, like, what happened to you? What what <laughs> happened in the last year? You know? Yeah. So. Do you guys also feel like? The whole COVID thing, like being indoors for freaking 12 months, 13 months in a row has made you kind of like not that great at socializing and holding conversation. I, I feel that. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I can hold a conversation with myself better. <laughs> the, my first time going into public back in like October, November was, I guess, pretty anxious. I was pretty anxious. It was pretty weird to suddenly be around humans. Now it's not weirding me out so much, but uh, yeah, the first time in public was fucking crazy for some reason. It felt familiar, but really, really weird. Yeah. Have you done any traveling? Have you gone to the airport at all? Yes, a few times. Yeah, that's that's really weird. I mean- I like uh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's way better now. <laughs> it's way better. Yeah. yeah. Way better. It seems like it would be scary, but the idea of having nobody sitting next to me, now that part's cool. The part- with like very short lines. That's really cool. I don't know. I just like it. Nobody's talking. The security was nice to me for a change. Because like, <laughs> they're like not like overworked. They're just like really friendly now. They have someone to talk to. They're like, hey, how's your day going? <laughs> <laughs> Airport is less weird than I thought it would be. And I mean, it's just because there's not many people flying. I'm sure it'll go back to being miserable in no time. Uh, especially with the vaccines coming out. I don't know. I think personally, like I'm, I'm already a bit more of a hermit like i tend to, to stay in. like it wasn't that much of a change to just staying in all the time but you know yeah but for that amount of time yeah I, I think we're all kind of <laughs> we're all kind of hermits but like for a year straight i think what it is is like when you're i think and and this is the way my brain works as well is like the second you're told that you can't go somewhere that you like now you have to stay in this place then it's like wait i want to leave <laughs> like you know so that's that's the only thing. But like I've probably spent a year indoors and never noticed before. Do you guys feel like the entire last year is just a, like gone? It was like taken from us? Like there's like last year didn't exist sort of? In some respects, yeah. No. No. I had I had a productive I had a productive last year. I don't know. I'm I'm not trying to, you know, I I feel bad because I know it was a very difficult year for a lot of people, but I feel like I got a lot done. But again, I think it's like it was closer to what I do anyways. So I think I know a lot of people are really outdoorsy and social and who like kind of thrive off of that. Th those are people who are like really affected by it because they're like, 
I'm going crazy. I'm going stir crazy. So I think I was just a bit more fortunate to like it being closer to my default setting, you know? Jake, just out of curiosity, because I bet you that a lot more people feel like you do than me and Misha on this, because I don't feel like last year was taken from me at all. I, I had a very impactful 2020, but like, what about it makes you feel like it was taken away? So I did not have a productive year. You know, I stayed pretty productive and, and I got work done. And um, it's just that like the normal way of doing things was just kind of taken away from everybody. And there's no real end in sight. I mean, even now with the vaccine, you know, they're still saying you still have to wear a mask. There are variants like this could, you know, mutate and get worse. You know, who knows? You know, I think those people are just trying to be careful, but life has changed for us forever. You know, like we're always going to kind of look at every year that approaches and be like, you know, is this going to happen again? Because now we've had it happen to us in such a substantial way that, you know, we're forever changed. And I don't know, it just felt it felt a bit apocalyptic for me. But I don't know, it just didn't it didn't really have if I thought a pandemic was going to happen, I thought it'd be more like the movies you know, where you'd see like biohazard signs everywhere and like just like yellow body bags just stacked to the f- the sky. And, you know, it wasn't like that. All right. Let me summarize. This pandemic was not James Cameron enough for Jake. And he's bummed about that. <laughs> that's why you're that's why he's depressed. Yeah, it's just it, it's just confusing. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, will we ever shake hands again? Will we ever like, you know, hug strangers or, you know, people we just met rather? You know, it's just like you know, when I when I'm watching TV and I see people like interacting, I'm like, ew, ew, don't touch him. He's got COVID. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> that's true. I like that. Like, I don't want to shake hands with people, <laughs> and I'd rather not have strangers hug. <laughs> I, well, dude, I'm right there with you. I've been, I've been, you know, whenever we go to like Japan or like like uh, like, well, especially Japan. You know, they're wearing masks everywhere, and like that, like they're bowing and all that stuff, and it's. And it's like, oh, like this is a culture where you're not supposed to touch each other, or get close to each other. Probably for that reason. Probably for yeah, yeah. They've dealt that. with like all sorts of like you know diseases and pandemics, so they've just learned the lesson. We're just we're just slow to the take on that one, and we're gonna figure it out. But I'm like, I'm not too mad about that to be honest. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, if it's friends and people I know well, I like to to hug and and whatever. But like, that's more what I meant. Yeah, but strangers. Yeah, I, I'm I'm quite happy. Uh, keeping my distance from strangers. You want to know what sounds a million freaking light years away from now is what a metal show is like being in the pit at a show, like feeling some dude's back sweat on your chin. You know what I mean? Like having somebody (laughs) sneeze down your throat in the pit, like just, I I can't imagine a society where that like, sure. There's like shows and tours being announced and stuff. Do you think that it'll take a while for people to um, de-ice when they get into those mass public situations i'm not so sure reason i'm saying that is because if you look at like footage of like spring break and parties that people are having you wouldn't know that there's a pandemic going on so part of me thinks that the moment people will get back into a room with a band they're excited about it'll just be like it was but I don't know what I'm talking about either. I don't know. I mean, I think I think you have you have an interesting point because like, you know, it may just be like we are creatures of habit. And like, I think like we've gotten accustomed to this, this setup that we've had to deal with. But maybe like once you get back into a show, you'll feel that energy and you'll go back into that fuck it mode. I mean, like to enter a, a mosh pit anyways, you have to have quite a bit 
of amount of, of fuck it going in your head, right? I'm allowed yeah, to swear, fuck right? It, you're, yeah, your fuck okay, it fuck has got to be pretty high. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think I think the adrenaline and the excitement might take over uh, sort of rational considerations in that moment. And then, you know, and that's maybe a little bit of, of, of hope on my end, because honestly, if we had a socially distant crowd, the energy would just be shot and I probably wouldn't be having a great time. So it'd be like playing Vegas. (laughs) No, Vegas was sick last time. You remember? Oh yeah. I I still, it still has that, like that mark on it that we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vegas will forever be tainted. But, but, uh, um, but yeah, you're right. It was no, they, they redeemed themselves last time because it was actually like a, a relatively small crowd. And like, granted, they're, they're not a very strong market for us. And it's usually a place that we play just because it's, you know, kind of on the way it makes sense to play. But it's been getting better. And like the crowd, like I think numbers wise looked pretty small and whatever. And we kind of went in like the last show, like, all right, fuck it. Let's just let's just have fun. Like we drank a little too much before and like just had a good time. And then like the energy was sick. It ended up being like a really good crowd. Like <laughs> I had a great All right. Time I'm sorry. It. Thanks for running damage control on that one. Yeah. I won't, yeah. I won't <laughs> credit where credit's due, man. You know, credit where credit's due. Because like any other year I would have been like, yeah, Vegas, you know, whatever. Like let's watch the bowling lanes while we uh, while we play. But because it's at Brooklyn Bowl <laughs> and there literally are bowling lanes. But <laughs> but this is the one time I was like, man, like they actually brought it. It was a small crowd. It was like good, good energy, though. All right. Pick any other place that that it's going to be like what we normally play. What's the other place that sucks? Idaho. There we go. How are <laughs> L.A. and New York City for you guys? Always, always fantastic. Yeah. Always killer, killer shows. Yeah. I feel like those are two markets we didn't have to work for. Interesting. Like just right off the bat, those were two very strong markets for us. But those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Like, like there's been a lot of U.S. markets that we've had to fight for and work on. And like Vegas is an, actually an example of a market that uh, is why we work on it. Like there are some markets that we've gone like Boise. I think we gave up on because we're like it's literally just better to just drive through it or like have a day off <laughs> and relax because the shows were so poor there, uh, and we just eventually gave up. But like Vegas has always shown some promise. I think more and more people are moving there or there's a lot of transplants or whatever. But like used to be like there's just visitors. So who's going to go see a periphery show when they're visiting Vegas? But now there are more people that live there or whatever it is. Like we've just seen like an uptick in like people showing up. And this is this is historically probably one of our weakest, absolutely weakest markets. And it's gotten better and better to now where it's like we had a genuinely good show last time. It's worth investing in. So, you know, it's kind of how that works. But yeah, LA and New York are good. What do you think is the difference like between a market where you say to yourself, let's just drive through, let's take the day off after all these years. Um, what's the difference between that and a weaker market that you feel good about? What are the kinds of things or the, I guess the key performance indicators you're looking for that tell you this could get better? Seeing certain crowds over the years, like this is how, like in the very beginning of Periphery's career, even before I was in the band, like 2009, 2010, and then when I joined in 2011, like Germany is a great example. It's like we, we were told by everybody with a good head on our shoulders, just like, you know, stick it through. It'll get better. But the shows at the time were horrendous. It just nobody showed up. Nobody cared. We got lukewarm reactions. They wrote us notes. Yeah, they wrote... They wrote <laughs> Yeah, we got notes. Yeah, <laughs> notes. <laughs> there, there were go home, you know, chants and yells from the crowd. Like, yeah, and that was go like, home. <laughs> yeah, go home. Um, 
<laughs> and it was one of those things where we're like, why do we try in this market? But then every tour we did, the crowd would get a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And up until the point where, you know, our most recent one, like, it was fucking satisfying to see these these shows, like, finally feel like there was excitement, like there was, you know, like there was some kind of success coming from all the previous years of work put in. And you could see the potential little by little over the years, which is why you know, that would have to be one of the indicating factors in determining, like, do we just give up or not? Like, we're seeing some growth. Let's just try and keep farming these markets. Um, whereas other ones, like we keep bringing up Boise, which I think the last time we played Boise was 2011, and there were seriously like 12 people at the show. This I'll never forget. There was like, yeah, like a talent show or whatever. So it was like the opening bands were like all these like talent show kids. So like literally the majority of the audience was just the parents and friends and the entire tour package got walked out on because as soon as they left, they all (laughs) left. So like, I'd never seen like the actual (laughs) package get like a walkout, you know, usually it might be like the headliner or whatever that they get to walk up. It was the entire tour package. And I think that was the moment in my head. I was like, yeah, maybe this should just be a day off. (laughs) (laughs) Then the next time we went back to Boise, we made it a day off. And we, yeah, and it was a great day. It's a river. great place, great place to spend a day off. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but like, there's there's also like more uh, less extreme, but kind of more relevant examples like uh, like Austria. We've probably played that same room, the same like two three hundred people like for the last ten years, and it's and it's far to get there. Uh, and I love Austria. I love being able to, to to play there. But like, we started to be like, well. Why are we doing this? We're literally paying between the gas and the bus fees to get there. We're paying to play here. Like the merch sales aren't offsetting anything. And it's not like we're investing in growth because it's, we have not grown. And, and then like we have Germany to contrast with that, where we can see, and we, you know, we're very data driven. We have data points for everything. So we're keeping track of everything, uh, you know, sort of answer that question. Our, our manager is really on top. He's very, very data driven. So that's like, when we're looking at like where to invest and where not, it's it's always just sort of looking at the past and looking at the growth and, and sort of drawing uh, trends from there. It's interesting that you talk about it with the word invest, because I don't think a lot of bands do that. <laughs> I mean, well, that, you know, whether you realize, whether you realize or not, like that is, you know, just like kind of just putting time into a, into a market. But I mean, look, it's a business. I mean, we've, we've talked about this many times. We all know that that's the case. It's like you, you are, you only have, your your time is not worth zero. So you're you're investing your time and your effort and money into into growth that eventually should should flourish into something. If it doesn't, then you cut your losses and you go like you know that, that at least that's our philosophy. And I think a lot of bands' philosophies, or I'd, I'd argue a lot of successful bands' philosophies, are the ones that sort of know how to cut the fat and like really just focus on the the things that that give them return on investment. Right? Absolutely. It's just cool to hear it actually talked about in concrete terms so i think that that's something that's missing with a lot of musicians producers any sort of artists that are trying to do things professionally is actually having concrete terms that they use for things not just this feels good this doesn't feel good yeah i mean that's that's a fair point and i mean i think this will be the eternal battle you know as as we've spent like over a decade in this industry now touring it's like I'm just aware of way too many musicians who like, you know, are, are phenomenal who are just like next level musicians and like just don't have that business side on lockdown. And it sucks because you see like they just don't look at it the same way. And I'm not saying that we're better or worse, you know, in that category. But it's like 
that is something that we've focused on and that we've seen results from focusing on to where it's like that's that's very important to us. I think the the the, the important thing to remember about our band is that every one of us is, has stayed hands on from pretty much the beginning. Um, and we all kind of have to sound off on what's going on business wise. You know, we don't leave anybody out of the equation and it, nobody has really gotten to the point in the evolution of our business where it's like, oh, well, you know, this guy's got it or our manager will handle it. And, you know, I'll just trust that they're doing a good job. Like we all stay pretty informed on, on every, every member of the band stays informed on what's going on. And I think that's why we've been able to, to grow. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of uh, bands do this, and I would recommend that you do, especially if you want to take your band seriously. But, like, we have weekly business calls, like, where the whole band gets on. And, like, we talk business and we talk the plans for the week, just as I do with my businesses, as I'm sure you guys do with your businesses as well. Like, you have to have a schedule and be apprised, and you have to have things to be ready by next week or whatever. So... We, we just have a weekly business call. We set aside an hour, hour and a half. And that's, that's a massive thing. You know, that's something that our, that we started doing. Like once we, we got our, our new, I want to say new manager. He's been with Wayne for how long? Six years. Yeah. Six years. Yeah. He's effectively a band member as far as I'm, I couldn't even imagine this band or, or our label without him being involved. Like, you know, he's just, he's just part of the team. And he's also the guy like that, like when, when, we started working with him periphery started to become profitable. Like we didn't lose money on every tour. And like we, you know, he, he, he just put things into place that made us start to make money. Even though, even though we are paying him percentage of what we make, we were profitable all of a sudden. And we, our profit has grown every year. And like, you know, it's, it's run, it's run very much like a business and, you know, we, we have sort of soft goals and whatever, but like, it's more just about investing in the future and just seeing any kind of growth and, maximizing the opportunities and what i would say is like an industry where you're just constantly trying to get blood from a stone you know what is it about him that makes him a good manager and i'm just curious what that means for you because if any band strikes me as a band that doesn't need management it would be you guys but you do have a manager and you speak very highly of him so i'm curious what that role is there's a lot of work at this level that needs to be done and Wayne has like a lot of, I mean, he worked, he, he's worked at a label. He has, he just has a lot of experience. So there's no, there's no substitute for experience, but what makes him an effective manager is the simplest thing. And I, you know, I can maybe count on one hand, how many bands actually like get along with their manager. Right. But we absolutely fucking love ours. Right. And it's really simple. He works hard and he gives a shit. And that seems to be the most fucking impossible thing to find. But that, if I had to really boil down to what it is, he works his fucking ass off. He's no bullshit. Like, he's not a schmoozer. He doesn't care about anything other than doing good work. And, like, like he just gives a shit. I've never felt before, like, we have a dude who is in our corner who is just like, you know, if anyone tries to fuck with us, he's the one going to them with the bat, you know? He's never been a yes man. Like, he, he will call you out on your shit. He will shoot you straight. And just a case in point, I mean, when we decided to call our last record Periphery 4, Hail Stan, <laughs> he, he put his foot down. He, he was like, guys, you know, I, all my years in this business, like, I know you guys are going to do your thing anyways, but I have to say, I think that's a horrible album title. <laughs> and here's why. 
And he didn't mince words. And, and that's kind of his whole approach. And with that approach comes a level of trust and, and respect that we gain for him in return. And that's kind of part of our relationship. And what, what, what helps is that while he is, like what Misha said, he's a, he's a sixth band member at this point. That's true, but he's also, he has a sort of outsider perspective where he can take a step back. You know, all five of us will be completely immersed in the music or whatever kind of creative endeavor or in the middle of a tour. And since he's not part of that process, he can kind of take a couple steps back from that myopic view that we are guilty of having sometimes. Yeah. His form of direct communication, I think, was a game changer for us because... Uh, I think Mark, you said it might have been you, Misha, but he he doesn't mince words. He 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 tells you things directly and with a lot of transparency. He explains his position. Like all of this stuff seems like it's common sense, but it's really hard to find in this industry. And I'm still like shocked we found a guy like Wayne. Yeah, I, I'm like I'm every day. I'm like I feel so goddamn lucky that we found Wayne because mm-hmm. it's like they're not a lot of guys. He's he's the real deal. There's a lot of guys will claim to be like that, but like at this point, you know, like we've seen, we've been through everything with him and it's like, we've seen when push comes to shove, like he's the real deal. And the Hillstand example is a great example as well, because he literally wrote us an email. <laughs> you know, he's like, I have to say my piece, like, it's like, I know you guys are going to do what you want to do. I know you guys are excited, but you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say how I feel honestly. Like it's my job to say that, right? It was convincing, dude. Like I, yeah. there was a, I read that email. I was like, he made uh... very good points. He made very good points. <laughs> of course, we're stubborn, and and our point was like, you know, he just didn't want it to affect. All he cares about is protecting the band. So he only have a problem when he thinks like, hey, I think this is going to hurt you more than it will help you. And and that's where we disagreed. I was like, I think we know our fan base. I think they'll react well to this. It wasn't like, oh, I think it's stupid, which he did think. He was like, but I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I think it's stupid, you know? He's like, I just don't want it to hurt you guys, right? And then in the end, it ended up being a hit with the like the fans loved it and it didn't and it didn't matter. And it was kind of like the way that that we thought it was gonna be. And he came back and he's like, All right, I have to give it to you guys. You like you 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 had your finger on the pulse. I still hate the album name, but at least you weren't at least you weren't wrong. And so so he was fine with it because he like he didn't want to be right about it, but he just had to say his piece. So that I think is the right way to approach something like that. He's not just trying to be a contrarian and then stick to his guns even when he's kind of proven wrong like he he knows when 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 he's just i just feel like he genuinely is out to protect us and to make sure that we do as well as possible and make the most of our our opportunities and that unfortunately is apparently very rare to find i think it is very rare I think the other thing, too, is that he trusts us to make good decisions for the band. Maybe not with, like, the Hail Stan thing, which why he protested <laughs> it. But, like, you know, he, he, he always tells us, like, you know, you guys know your music. You know your fan base. Like, I trust you if you think this is the right way to go. And, you know, there, there's this mutual respect, this, this back and forth of mutual respect. And, and that's, you know, it, it makes the relationship healthy. Yeah, I agree. So when it comes to a big disagreement like that, I mean, that's a pretty major disagreement. What is it about the way that everything works where you can just have a major disagreement like that and everything's good? Well, because we're just we're just having rational conversations and things may get a little heated or whatever at times because it's emotional stuff, music, right? But at the end of the day, we can have conversation. We, we're very much a band that, that's about communication. And, and he's very much about communication. So we just talk about it. We just keep talking about it. Eventually, there's some reasonable 
middle ground. Because again, it's understanding we're all on the same team. He's not just saying something to be difficult or to be a contrarian. He's saying something because he has some very logical sets of points or, or, or data that suggests that this is the right course and we might have a, a different set of arguments. So then we just talk about it and either we'll kind of bring him to our side or he'll bring us to his, you know, it's gone both ways for sure. Or sometimes we just meet in the middle and be like, okay, here is a compromise that addresses all of our concerns. So if you just talk about it and like, if there's trust and respect, as Jake said, then that facilitates all of that because we understand that the only motivation, everybody's got the same motivation is for the, the project to be successful. And you could just trust that everyone's coming from the right place. So actually having him, as Mark said, like not have as myopic a view as we tend to have sometimes can actually offer insight or things that we didn't think about. We're like, wow, that's actually pretty interesting. We should address this. Or maybe we shouldn't do this thing that we all, the, the five of us got super hyped about and just totally just neglected to think about these other facets or aspects. So, so it's a very valuable thing just because we respect each other a lot. I think that one of the keys here is that you, you mentioned a few times that you're all on the same team and you all want the same thing. Uh, one of the things that you really need to be careful of in this industry is making sure that the people on your team actually are on your team. Right. There's a lot of conflict of interest or leveraging that takes place Um in the music industry and a lot of people will take on team members who don't necessarily have their best interests at heart and they learn this the hard way. I mean, it happens all the time. So I think having the trust and the knowledge that, um, that you guys are all on the same team. Well, first of all, that right there in and of itself is huge and unique. Yeah. I mean like, and, and you know, by contrast, like to the previous manager, that's, that was exactly the issue is like, I didn't trust the motivations of our previous manager. Um, so it's very refreshing to have someone that you can, you know, and like I would, I would put it as far as to say, like if we hadn't found someone like Wayne, we might actually, like you said, be better off without management. Like there's a lot of cases to be made that like having a manager who isn't effective or who has different motives would actually be worse than just self-managing. But if you can find someone who really is in line and really does understand you, that can elevate your opportunities and one of the things that we did when we were, you know, we were auditioning managers, we were talking to a bunch of them is like, we let them talk. We didn't tell them what we wanted. We want, we were like, okay, what do you, what do you see as a future for our band? And we wanted, you know, we wanted to see if they really understood us, if they were just managing, you know, we were like enough of a hot commodity at that point to where there was a bunch of people who wanted to manage us. But Wayne was the one who like right off the bat, like was just saying stuff that was in line with what we wanted. And it showed that he had an understanding of like what our goals were and like what, what kind of band we wanted to be and what was important to us. Like, you know, there were other managers who were like trying to talk about like arena tours and whatever. And it's, you know, they're trying to wow us and they're like name dropping. And it's like, that stuff is so ineffective. And in fact, I think, I think one of the first things that Wayne said, which I love because like uh, their management uh, manages uh, Paramore, right? He was like, by the way, like, and he said this to us, like, this was unprompted. He's like, oh, by the way, you know, don't, don't sign, don't, don't hire me expecting to ever like tour with Paramore or anything. Like, that's not how I do things. Like, <laughs> we're not, we're not throwing favors here. Like, if you're interested in me, it's because you're interested in me. Like, don't think that like, you're going to get any favors from anyone else on the roster because they've got some heavy hitters. And, you know, there could be an opportunistic play on our end. And he was just straight up like, nope, not going to happen. Like, as he's trying to convince <laughs> us to, to work with him. The and balls I was just like, on Dude, this that's guy. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the balls on this guy. 
That's actually great. Yeah. It was the opposite of what every other every other manager was like name dropping all their bands like oh you know maybe there's an opportunity for this or that you know you guys want to play arenas right you know it's like you're gonna be no, a star in this town kid <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when people do that because um it's a tactic that really does wow people who don't know much but if you think about it it's is weak as hell because if the value that they're bringing to the table is based on what favors they can pull or how they, what leverage they can use with other people on the roster. Well, what happens if those people leave their roster or something? It doesn't talk about the actual value. Yeah. I mean, like as you identify, it's like putting value in something that's not them, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. That is a very common thing. And like pretty much every other call had some degree of that. Save for like maybe one. Is this a kind of a cautionary uh, tale for people out there who could be looking for managers for their band but yeah if if uh if they're trying to sell you on that kind of thing it's uh it's bad news like if if, it, if if wayne had come to us and promised that slash would be our fourth guitar player in two years you know <laughs> <laughs> i'll make it happen kid <laughs> so, we go way yeah. back but you know, you know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting uh, point to be made here, which is like, you know, we get asked a lot, like, you know, like in this day and age, is it worth being signed? Is it worth having a manager? Is it worth this or that? And it's sort of this black, black or white thing. And there's no consideration for like, are they good? <laughs> is the deal good? <laughs> is the relationship good? Because I would say, yeah, it's probably better to to not have a label than to have a bad record deal but there is a record deal that could genuinely benefit you if it's if it's you know set up properly and it's a similar thing with management you're probably better off not having a manager if they're sort of you know predatory to your project but like if they are genuinely on your side and they 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 are effective at what they do then of course i mean it's a very simple equation they take 10 to 15 percent and either you're netting more or with them. The, the idea is that they are doing effective enough work that you're still netting more, which was very, very, very much the case with Wayne. So I, I want to make sure that dude gets paid every cent. Like I consider him worth every cent we pay him. If you don't feel that way about your manager, then maybe you shouldn't have a manager. You know? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I hear a lot of people complaining about management not earning their percentage. They'll say things like, uh, yeah. All he does is send some emails. What do they even right. do? If you're asking yourself, what do they even do? That might be your sign right there. <laughs> and we've been on both sides of that. So it's like, I, I feel very fortunate. I, but I will say it's just very hard. I, I think in this industry, you know, like it's just very hard to find anything, right? Uh, and it's very easy to be a, a pretender or to like kind of, you know, show up and talk the talk. Why do you think that is? Because we don't have any like sort of standards, you know, like there's no, like, dude, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, like there's like shit you got to do and money and time you have to put in. But here, like, you know, you you, you could spend like $200,000 getting a degree at Berkeley for something and like it will be no better off than like some dude who's like, oh yeah, he's sick at slinging merch, you know, take him on tour. And generally speaking, that's who we'll take. <laughs> is that guy. So like, you know, it's entirely off of just like reputation and, 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 and it's, it's a little bit of a, of a catch 22 because, you know, to get sort of hired for stuff, you need to like already be in it and have experience. So it's a bit of a slow process. You just have to kind of throw yourself at it. Um, 
there isn't sort of like preparation and like, you know, diplomas and institutions that can vouch for you. Right. Uh, and then there are people who could talk like they have experience and who can say all the things that you want to hear. And we've encountered, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize, but I'd almost say maybe most of the people in this industry are like that to some degree, you know? Well, there's no, ba- no real barrier to entry. There's none. I mean, there's social barriers to entry and a lot of people are very guarded, but I think the reason that they're guarded is because of people like that. And because there is a very low barrier to entry. I mean, someone could just call themselves a manager because they decided to become a manager. That's my point. I could say I'm a manager tomorrow and then people would believe me. Yeah. But if I said, hey, I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer or I'm, I'm a mechanical <laughs> get, engineer, they'll be like, what? Like, have you been studying secretly for the last seven? You know, and that's the that's the thing. And and if you have the, the confidence and the attitude and you can sell that, people will buy into it. You know, like there is a way that you can talk and there's a confidence that you can have because because there's no barrier to entry and because we have these shortcuts for sort of determining whether a person's serious or not. Like sometimes people can fake that well enough to convince enough people. And then it's so much about, about clout and vouching for one another. Like when I think, I always think about the example of, uh, of Matt Rosenblum, Rosie, who's now my business partner, right. But who literally just started out next to Jeff Holcomb, Mark's, Mark's brother, who was Mark was doing, or uh, sorry, Jeff was doing uh, merch for us at the time. And this was on summer slaughter. Rosie just happened to be next to him. He was doing merch for the ocean, just happened to be the guy next to him. They talked and, and he was like, yeah, he, he, he sells merch well, and now I want to do lights, so we need a merch guy. I recommend him. And we're like, well, you know, we trust Jeff. He's a good uh, judge of character, so if Jeff says he's good, then that's good. That's why we hired him, and eventually he became our tour manager. And, like, you know, like he, like, really worked his way up through through the industry, and he's very successful. He was successful in that, and, like, now we own a business together. And it's like that that's a trajectory of these things, and it's literally just because he was in the right place at the right – he was just next to, to Jeff – that was the, the, that's all that we needed. A person that we trust vouched for him, you know? Yeah. But that's how easy it is also yeah. for people who suck to elevate, I guess. That's where the consistency comes in. Like Matt wouldn't have made it, Rosie wouldn't have made it very far if he wasn't who he said he was. Yep. It would have been one tour and like, yeah, like fuck this guy. We had, we had one merch guy and this guy was vouched for, uh, I'm not going to name him, but like he was vouched for and like he'd, he'd like done, maybe we just caught him at a bad point in his life, but like. He toured with a lot of our friends. They all said good things, and it was real bad, really, really bad. And we just never took him out again. So, um, you know, it, it it can even slip through through our radars a little bit. But like, you, you live and you learn. But yeah, experience will will sort of help you out with that. But a lot of people, as you pointed out, don't have the experience, or they're just excited. Or they just, you know, some people are really good at uh, deceiving other people. What I've noticed with those con artist types who happen to stay in the industry is um they will work a certain band or group of bands for a while and then once the relationship expires like they get found out they'll go and repeat the exact same thing in another circle and just kind of keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again um and i've just been amazed by how many of them there are who've been able to somehow maintain entire careers all this time, just sucking and kind of 
being predators, basically preying on one band, then preying on another, then preying on another, and just hoping that they don't talk. Yeah. That's, a, you know, you brought up a good point about this industry. Since there aren't standards, there's there's no HR department. There's management, but not in the traditional sense. It's like, you know, you can go to work. You can be high at work. You can be drunk at work when you're, oh, yeah. when you're, when you're playing music for a living. And you know, you have to manage yourself. You have to manage your personality. And if you don't do that, you know, you end up in these very complex relationships. Like we consider our crew, our family, like they're brothers to us. So if there was like some sort of like thing between us, it's a, it's a lot more complex than just being like, okay, well they're fired. You know, it's just like, you have to, I think that's how these, these types of people kind of like, insert themselves themselves into these circles and they stay for long periods of time because it's not as easy as just like especially if they are cool people on the surface and they have you know ties to these people and these bands and stuff it's a lot harder to get rid of them and you know after a while they get good at doing that you know it's 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 a really weird dynamic and you know that's why you have to be extra careful because you will get people that are that kind of insert themselves into your your group and your circle and then they're hard to root out. I always felt like there's a lot in our career collectively that you could attribute to luck, but I but I have to say man, it really feels like we won the fucking lottery with our crew over the years. And you know, you brought up the Rosie situation. Like, yeah, that panned out perfectly for him and for us. Yeah. Uh it was it was absolutely ideal and like there was never a like a like a aha moment, you know, like 3 weeks into tour we find out, you know, you're shooting heroin in your bunk or something like that. Like that never there never was a moment and we got very lucky and the same goes with the rest of our crew. It's like some of these guys like Alex Marquides our our front of house guy for so many years, like been with the band since 2009 and just got we lucky. went to high school together yeah he was a friend of misha's like and and then but he turned out to be like our guy yeah it's like it's 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 wild yeah and now he's inextricably in the family you know and there's so many of these cases up and down our crew where it's like just damn looking back on it wow we we we, we kind of dodged multiple bullets there yeah because you know those these are also people like you know who are close enough and to have an effective tour, you have to trust enough that like, if they wanted to screw you over, they could like very, very, very easily. Because I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys agree, but like, I think to have an effective business, you have to have that level of trust where you just stop questioning like this whole realm of things. Cause it would just be too much work and stress. And you're just trusting these people that, you know, that you should be trusting to not screw you over because if they wanted to, they could really, really screw you over. And the same is true. Uh, you know, when you're in a band, like if you're looking over your shoulder with everyone constantly, you'll drive yourself crazy. So you have to trust these people. But like we've been able, we've been fortunate and, and able to pretty much mostly be able to trust these people. Uh, and then, you know, it's very clear when we can't and then they're sort of eliminated. <laughs> it's interesting to note that you want to be in a situation where you can trust and let go of the paranoia, where I think a lot of people feel like they can never let go of that. And I think that that holds a lot of people back. I really do think you should strive to have those types of relationships because if you can't trust the people you're working with, how are you going to do your best work if you're constantly on, on the defensive and constantly trying to find plots? Like it's not, you can't, it's not conducive to great work. 
people always forget about the crew because they're not like they're not in the band they're not forward facing but without the crew and without the massive amounts of trust we play on them we put on them we can't play like none of this would happen like at all like we wouldn't be able to do what we do and it's just like you know they're they're in some ways more important than the band and you know it might be like cheesy and cliche to say that but it's true like i we can't do any of this like we could write music record it and put it out but anything beyond that is it, it would be impossible so that you yeah, know spe- especially at the level guys. especially at the level we're at and you know very much with crew or the band or any of these things or business in general like i find like if you can sort of divide and conquer and everyone focus you know I, ideally you have a group of people who each have specific talents then you don't have to try to be a jack of all trades and be sort of mediocre at everything. You can, you know, specialize in the thing that you enjoy doing and that you're actually good at. And you have other people that delegate or split up whatever. Right. And that's where that level of trust comes in. Right. But that's that, you know, you're saying like, that's why we want is because like that in, to me is the most efficient way to, to run a business or a group or whatever. And it's very much the same thing with the crew, the band, you know, the business side of everything, uh, even management and whatever, right? It's like it's everyone who is sort of like a specialist in this field is doing that thing. They don't have to worry about all these other things that they might have had to do had they not had those people. They wouldn't be as effective at it. They would have less time for it. There would be more stress. Now you can just put 100% of your attention to the thing that you're actually good at. And now it's at the point where like, you know, us as musicians, we can basically just focus on writing the music, which is a thing that we really enjoy doing. And we leave a lot of the, the big picture and the, the, especially the day, day-to-day stuff to, to management on, on the road. Like the crew work way harder <laughs> than the man. We're babies on, on, on the road now. I mean, it didn't always be that way, like, but we put like an incredible crew together and, and they, they take care of absolutely everything. And they, they do a really, really good job and they make it look effortless and they make us look good. But we we are now at the point where we don't have to do that much and we can focus on putting on as good a show as possible. And back in the day when we had to do everything, you know, there was rarely a show where everyone felt good about it because there's always someone who hadn't slept because they were driving all night or working merch or, you know, something. And it's like, finally, it just makes everything better for everybody. So now to tour at this level, at this, at, at this level of production and whatever, um, and at our ages, like... We need we need not only a crew but like a very very effective one uh, to be able to be successful. So having people who are great at what they do and so great at what they do that you can just trust them to be great and do right. what they do and you don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean that is kind of the recipe for any kind of team. I think exactly exactly. So that's why you know, and, and obviously if you can trust them, then you don't have to worry like oh are they gonna screw us over beyond beyond our back or anything like that. Like you like then you're focusing on that. So like having like genuinely a, a tight team is, I, I think is one of the most important things, whether it's bands, business, whatever. And it's interesting because, you know, I think we're very effective identifying these sort of characters and then like all of our friends. But not that I have a problem with this because I I'm happy for for everyone who who takes it. But like it's kind of like become a thing. It's like, oh like our friends bands are like, oh they're good. <laughs> we should take them out too. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> a little bit a little bit of poaching. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, so when you get together and write and have like sessions like that, they're several weeks long. It was several weeks, right? Oh, it was like a week and a half. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I was Ten wrong. Days. It's not several weeks. We want it to be several weeks. We, we just want can't. probably the next yeah. one we should. Yeah. But yeah. But when you have that kind of get together or a tour where really the most important thing you could do is focus on the music. 
Like, I mean, I'm sure there's business stuff that comes up all the time, but really, I mean, if you've got 10 days to write, that really should be the priority. You have a setup right now to where it seems to me like you can just do that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's something that has been slowly developed over time. And it's not just that it's also our relationships. And I think, you know, we're in like the, the best place we've ever been relationship wise. And from a collaborative standpoint, so, I mean, that that last writing session was fucking awesome. I, I had a great time. I was really sad when it was over. It blew past. It was, like, over, like, almost as soon as it started. It didn't feel like we were working very hard to me. I felt like we were mostly hanging out. Like, I'm, I, like, I look back at everything in a row. I'm like, how the hell did we write all that, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> it was a very productive session, actually. We've taken on a bit of a tall order, as it were. I don't know how much I should spill, but... We have quite a bit of work ahead of ourselves that we're probably creating for ourselves. Well, I believe you guys. You know what, something that's funny with what we're talking about right now? Did you ever feel like when you were getting into the music industry, when business people would say, you should just worry about the music. I'll ca- I'll take care about of this. I always felt like that was like a red flag. Like, you're saying that because uh, you're hoping that I'm a stupid musician. <laughs> but... You know, and you can just do whatever you want. And lots of times when people do say things like that, like you just worry about like being creative, like I'll deal with the money and all that shit. There are nefarious motives, but what we are talking about right now is actually kind of, yeah, it is kind of cool to just be able to worry about the music when that's the thing you need to worry about. And it is really cool to be able to worry about the thing that you are specializing in and trust that somebody else is going to do their part with what they specialize in. So it's weird because that original thing that used to scare the shit out of me when I'd hear it from somebody in the music industry is actually kind of what we're all striving for with our teams. It's weird. That That's really funny, dude, because, dude, even you saying that line, I'm just getting douche chills, right? I'm you know what like, I'm saying? I'm like, oh, you know my exactly God, what I'm who saying. the fuck says that? Like, you know, I've never... But I'm like, that is literally what we're doing. We're like, hey, Wayne, how about you? Like, like Wayne's coming to us be like, hey, you guys take care of the music. I'll take care of everything else. And he's literally like that. Like, you know, like very, very different to like uh, previous manager and other managers that I'm aware of and whatever. Like, uh... We've had to delay albums. We've, you know, and his question, when we're delaying an album, he's like, okay, so is this delay going to improve the music? And if the answer is yes, which it always is, that's why we want to delay. He's like, okay, fine with me. He's like, the music's the most important thing. That's what's sacred. And like, he also, like, we always have to like force feed him the music. He's like, oh, you don't need to show me anything. You know, I'm fine with you showing me whatever you're comfortable with, which makes me want to show him even more. Because because he just he's not on top of it being like, okay where are we at? You know, what have we written? What does this album sound like? He just trusts. He just completely trusts us with the music. He just wants us to feel good about it. And he's like, okay well, if you need more time to feel good about it, then you get more time. We'll rearrange everything. So what's the difference then? You know, because like I like I just said it and like you said, it gave you the douche vibe and I can tell you what the difference is. Yeah, what's the difference? Because you know there's a difference. I mentioned it earlier. It's because the band still stays hands on with everything. Like we we have that weekly call. We're never out of the loop of what the moving parts are for the band. We, you know, we all have to since we're an equal democracy, we all have to vote on things. You know, some things are un- unanimous, some things are majority. And 
it, the band still stays very involved with what's going on. It's just kind of like the day-to-day moving parts that we can trust are getting done. But every, So nothing happens in the dark. Correct, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Because of this weekly call, that's kind of where we make our decisions and talk about plans and pitch ideas. Everybody's involved. Everyone stays involved. That's why something like what you're saying can work with us and with Wayne and the band. It's It's because... Everybody has to sign off on this stuff before we make any moves. So, you know, if Wayne starts doing stuff that we're not cool with, which has never happened, you know, we would know about it immediately and we could, you know, we could address it. But or he would just tell us he, he wouldn't do something without us talking about it. If Correct. You, if, yeah. if any of us want to do anything like we'll wait for the weekly call or if it's so time sensitive that we can't, we'll schedule a call. Nothing ever happens without like everyone being a prize. So it's like just because you're not in the trenches about the subject doesn't mean you're not aware of it in this band. Like there's yep. someone who is in the trenches who is doing all the work, but everyone knows that it's happening. There's as as Jake said, nothing's in the dark. And again, it comes back to trust. It's like I trust that when Wayne is trying to sell us on something or trying to get us to do something, that his motivations are pure for the band and it's not like some some self-serving thing or whatever and it just saves us a lot of heartache because and a lot of time and and discussion because we're like okay how we can react to the facts of it and not the emotion yeah absolutely it's like it's like saying you guys want to be millionaires right i can make you millionaires it's like everybody everybody wants to (laughs) just trust me man yeah (laughs) everybody wants to reach that like you know everybody wants to be a millionaire everybody wants to reach some level of financial comfort where they don't have to think about money and that's you can't just say that to somebody, you know, the, the fact that that's being said to you off the bat should be the most enormous red flag ever. That stuff is gained through trust. It's gained through time and experience and, and other actions, which fortify this sort of, you know, this, 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 this feeling like, okay, this is, this is what we're meant to be doing. I've talked about this before, but like, do you remember the battle for Sumerian? Well, that's kind of one of those things I'm <laughs> yeah. it's fucking ingenious on their end because like by the time you've won this fucking thing, what are you going to do? Say no to the contract? Well, that that's what the guy did and poof gone. Like uh never heard from him again. And and I know a lot of people, well, have known a lot of people over the years who got offered the entry level record deal and thought that they were too good for it. And then that was the last deal they ever got offered. But then I know people like you guys. So the thing is that it's really hard to know which, which one you are. Like, I bet you that Slipknot didn't sign an amazing deal. I bet you they signed the seven album Roadrunner. I, I, I don't deal. know. I wonder. Cause Who knows? Here, here, but here's the, here's the difference. And here's what I always tell people. Cause people are like, you know, even with our label, they're like three dots. Like, how do we submit? How do we submit? It's like, we don't even accept submissions. And that's not really how we're, we're working. But like, don't submit to labels. Don't create the dynamic. You want the ball to be in your... When, when Ash from Sumerian came to me, I said, why should we sign with you? That's the question you should be asking. I was like, sell your label to me. Not the other way around. If you're going like, please, will you sign my band? Please, will you sign my band? Then they're going to give you the absolute worst record deal you've ever seen in your life. And your options are yes or no. How do you have any negotiating power at that point? Balls in their court. 
if you develop your band enough and you get enough clout and you get enough respect to where the labels are now coming to you, and ideally a few labels are coming to you to where now you get a bidding war going on. Like our deal that eventually we signed with Ash is why Roadrunner was like, we fucked up. What territories can we grab? You know, and they're like, it, there's a dynamic going on there. And like, you could start to negotiate and like, I'm pretty sure it was pressure from all the other labels and Ash not wanting to miss out on us, which is what eventually got him to cave and be like, all right, fine, I'll do your licensing deal. You know, like that's the dynamic you want to create where you have choices and you're telling these labels, like, what can you do for me? You know, why, what makes you guys so special compared to these other labels? And that was our approach. And then we were also patient. We didn't just like sit there when they said, you know, we didn't go for it when they said no. You know, we're like, all right, well, then there's no deal to sign. We're going to wait until we get, you know, you know what you want. And then you wait until you get exactly that. It's ballsy. I think the, the prerequisite to having that approach going into a process like that is needing to have a belief in your art. It is knowing that what you, what you have is something that you believe and that you will die for, you know, because if you're kind of on the fence and half-assed about it, then you may take a deal that's not ideal. You may take something that's, uh, you know, like kind of one of the, the, those other cheap deals that we mentioned. But I mean, that was one of the things I was so enamored with, like looking at your guys's first record and like, you know, being a fan of all the demos you were putting out, Misha is like, it's almost just like, like you could sense it like this, this sort of unspoken confidence in what you were doing and eventually what you guys were doing before I joined the band. And I was like, this is something that they all fucking believe in. I don't know, it's, it's, it's really hard to look at it on paper and like find the reasons that, that you guys exuded that. But I think if you don't have that, if you don't have this sort of like insanely stubborn, almost like illogically stubborn pride in what you're doing, uh, then you can't even get to that next step, if that makes sense. And risk tolerance. I'd argue it came from someplace a little different, actually. All right. It wasn't like this pride in the music. Like, I've never thought that anything, you know, that first album I mostly, I never thought that anything I wrote is that amazing, you know? But it was an awareness of the work, and it was just an equation. It's like, how the fuck are you going to tell me that I'm going to record all of this shit myself? I'm going to provide artwork. I'm going to provide you with a fucking album, right? And you are taking such little risk on this. Your job is to basically find, like, you know, go through your distro partner, put this on shelves, and you're going to own the masters of this fucking record? For what? Like, I understand if you put a quarter of a million dollars into this album in marketing and in recording costs, you need some collateral. You need some something. But it's like, you're putting nothing. And I told him, like, you can give me a $0 advance. I don't care. Just put it into marketing, whatever you need to put into marketing. And I was like, I don't even care if that's a big budget. Um, that, that, we can, that we can recoup. But how is it fair that you own our masters? And it was this transitional period where, like, you know, like that was, it was just, you just own the masters. That was just accepted. But the, the money had changed. So it was like, you're not, it was one of the worst deals. You know, you were getting like these 360 deals, which was like one of the biggest fucking scams because they're like, oh, we're going to enter a partnership. It's like, yeah, so now you're going to take fucking tour merch and like, you know, because they weren't making their CD sales and they couldn't keep their companies afloat. They got to get the money from somewhere. So it was one of the worst times to get a fucking deal. And I just identified, I was like, this is not fair. And I'm not going to sign a deal that's not fair. I was like, I'll loan you my album for a period of time. That That's fair to me. And even that, like, I'll be generous. Like, I'll give you a long term and whatever, because I understand that you're, you're, you're going to put some, some risk behind it and you're going to put some work and, and dollars behind us. I still think it's, you guys are going to come out better, but it's mutually beneficial. But aside from that, it just did not seem fucking fair that we would do all the work, but then somehow 
get treated as if they'd just given us a quarter of a million dollar loan, you know, which we would get zero dollars from. And advances get repaid anyway, so it's not real money. You know, it's just an interest-free loan, which can be cool. But again, we're not getting that. So how the fuck are you taking our masters? And that was my argument, and that's why I stuck to it. It wasn't pride or anything. It was just, it, I think it was very logically based, you know? Just made, it made no, no sense. sense. It's well, a transaction. The, those record deals are set up traditionally, you know, they come from an era where artists were considered second or third class citizens. Basically they're like, they were them as humans was not really taken into consideration with original record deals and they were predatory as fuck. And I think that lots of these things that you had an issue with and just didn't make sense to you don't make sense there because they're, they're coming from a, they're basically the evolution of a really fucked up, system that by the time you guys were getting signed hadn't been corrected entirely yet and it still really hasn't but there there's some weird shit like uh recouping and then your royalty rate how you know what i'm about to say right about how you have to recoup only from the royalty rate how does that make any sense? Nothing makes sense and then there's things i mean we had to do that too and we even had things you know because they would try to cross like your income streams to try to recoup cross collateralization. Yeah. So that you oh, would yes. like, like have your merch money go feed it. They were just trying to get your money however possible. So like wherever we could, the one thing like we still, we got a favorable royalty rate, but like, yeah, it would still re like uh, go into recouping, which, you know, there's only so much of the battle that you can fight before their model falls apart. But I was just trying to find at least what I consider to be a fair middle ground. Like yeah. they wouldn't touch our merch. They wouldn't touch. There was no 360 deal. There's nothing like that. You know, and we're going to have you like Sumerian. It's like you're great in the U.S., but you're not anywhere else. So I was I always love to tell people this because the most lawyer speak thing ever. But like we had our contract negotiated from the universe in perpetuity to North America for whatever the licensing terms were. So I thought that was a pretty good <laughs> kind of shifted the scope on that and zeroed in a little bit because in those contracts, it is like, you know, they own the these universe, licenses yeah. in the universe in perpetuity. <laughs> so which is hilarious. It's this the most lawyer speak thing ever do you think contracts are going to say the multiverse soon yeah i was i was thinking about that i was like oh yeah because the universe might not be enough what if the if there's a multiverse you know there's a lot of money to be made in multiverses <laughs> but but the point I is like you know we, we kind of like zeroed in on like what their 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 towns were it's like okay so you're good for, for not even north america the u.s because we had a different label for canada and then at that point like uh i remember uh roadrunner and monty at roadrunner was like all right like what can we what can we snag you know like obviously like we missed that <laughs> we, we messed up and we missed out on this. So what's available? And they took every other territory. So just to echo what you just said about it not being pride, I just opened up a chat me and you had in 2010. Because <laughs> uh, my, uh, my guitar album came out right the same day, I believe, as the Periphery album. Oh, really? And I think we emailed about it. We did. And, uh, and I s hit you up and I said, congrats on an excellent first week. And we talked about bad reviews and you said, I really hope I don't agree with the bad reviews, <laughs> which, <laughs> which <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, but um, I've never had, I've never had a ton, a ton of confidence in, in like a lot of the things that I do, but it doesn't mean I don't enjoy them. And I think this is the disconnect. I always give the example of video games. Like I'm not particularly good at video games, but I fucking love playing them. <laughs> I consider it to be the same with music. I don't think I'm very good at music, but I fucking love making it. And I love making it with these guys. 
I consider them both to be like a lot better at it than I am. So they kind of lift me up and inspire me and push me to work harder. But like, yeah, I think it's important to sort of separate the two things. Cause just, just cause I don't think I'm like that good at music doesn't mean like I don't fucking love it. You know? Yeah. It's the same with cars. I'm not that good at driving. I'm not that good at competitive in sim racing, but I fucking am addicted to it. So, you know, <laughs> it's the exact same thing. And what's to stop you? Yeah, nothing, nothing. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to not be that good at it because then you have like a path. You have something to work on. You have something to improve at, you know? So something I'm curious about, and I'm curious about this with all of you. I'm wondering if uh, if you guys see things this way. So you were just talking about how logical the whole thing with the record deal was. Like it was not emotional. It was not pride. It was just, this doesn't make sense. Like I can't justify these kinds of deals because they don't, it just doesn't make sense. And it sounds to me like you had, it worked out if the band would succeed, how it would succeed. And business wise, that's kind of where my mind is at. Like there's a lot of stuff I've done that people consider to be high risk, but I don't see it as high risk because I've, I've figured out exactly how it's going to work. Like I figured out what it is that doesn't make sense, what does make sense. And if this was going to work out, this is how it would work out. And the path seems very, very clear to me. It's not risky to me. Do you kind of feel the same way? Because, I mean, a band is high risk, technically. I think by definition, at least from certain perspectives, we all... I mean, Jake moved from fucking New York to join this shitty fucking band, you know? Like... There's a lot of sacrifice, like Mark, what Mark did, like, I mean, tell, tell, why don't you tell people what you fucking did? Cause you didn't even tell us for like the longest time. I think you thought we'd be like, yo, just don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are you guys talking about my, my old job before periphery? Yeah. Like how you'd like, like learned everything by ear and you'd just wake up super early and just not sleep and whatever. Just Yeah. I mean, we talked about this on our last podcast, they all, but like I had a career I was, I was happy with, like, you know, it wasn't my be all end all of jobs, but it also wasn't this thing where, you know, I I felt like I was getting my soul removed every day and it was a stable, healthy life, uh, socially, financially, no risk. Yeah, I mean, that, fuck that's yeah, a, that's, let's join a band. Yeah, that's a perfect choice. I had these pieces in place where I could have walked this path, and I don't know how it would have played out, but it would have been way less volatile than something like joining a band. But at the end of the day, it, it kind of boiled down to okay, I had to focus on love, what I love most. Like, what would I be happy doing? And also, like, if I didn't take this, how would I feel about myself? You know, like, if I didn't take this path, what kind of regrets, what kind of uh, criticisms could I potentially look back on? I know that's like, that's not a great way to look at life is, is tr- try to, you know, minimize mistakes. But like that, that was kind of at the heart of it is like, if I don't choose to take this path and choose the less predictable sort of less stable life, could I live with myself, you know? And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I gave up a very stable, secure life to, to, to be part of something that at the time, I mean, they told me straight up, it's like, we're not making money. We, we, you know, like they were very upfront about that. It's like, don't expect to, to walk into this and, and make money. Like, here's the things that are great about it. And, and obviously just being able to be part of something and be able to contribute creatively. That was a huge one is, is that like they, they didn't want just a hired gun. They didn't want somebody to sit there and just like play riffs that they threw at me. Um, but yeah, dude, I mean, like kind of Misha was saying, like I would, I would wake up at like four thirty, four forty-five in the morning 
And uh, with a lot of Jake's help, actually, I would just learn Periphery 1 by ear. Uh, just just to be ready for the audition shows. Like we had three shows in Australia that uh, that they asked me to to sort of to play third guitar for and just see how it went, you know, see how the chemistry went, see how it felt to be on stage, see how it felt to be part of the band dynamic. And yeah, those were crazy times, man, burning the candle at both ends, working nine hours a day and then coming home and just playing guitar for the rest of it. Yeah, fucking crazy time. I just did a URM podcast with Eric Rutan and... Um he was telling me a very similar story, actually, just kind of goes to show that this is what it takes. He told me that um, he got offered a Morbid Angel tour, but just a tour, not like join the band or anything. And he lived in New Jersey and they were in Florida and he just moved there. <laughs> like he packed all his shit and moved thinking that like he was going to make it work. They didn't know he was moving, but he had it in his in his mind that uh that's what he had to do obviously it worked out but um but i think that those kinds of stories are kind of i mean they're very risky moves to throw your life away for the uh i guess the hope of having something work out but at the same time without making those moves how are you going to end up in the kind of situation you're in now like you have to make those moves i think yeah, I mean, the the one consistent thing about, like, all of us in Periphery is that we would all do things like that. We would all, like, make big moves that were, you know, were, were calculated when it comes to risk-taking, but... It's kind of like you kind of have this you have to have this this personality where you you'll trust you you believe in something so much that you will, you know, quit your career job or you will throw all your stuff in a storage unit and sleep on Misha's couch or, you know, and everyone has done something like that in the band to kind of like be a part of this group. And, uh, you know, it's a personality thing. You know, and it, and it kind of takes that certain amount of uh, self-confidence and confidence in the music to to want to be a part of something like that. Fuck it all. It's called fuck it all. It's also, it's also meant that like when things have been, you know, cause like periphery been a pretty slow burn and like, we're still not like a massive band or anything, but like, you know, it's been slow and steady, but there's a lot, a lot of humbling shows and tours, you know, and there's been a lot of not making money or anything like that. And the only way that any of us would be crazy enough to stick around is if like there was something that we believed in or something that, we're like, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Because otherwise, it'd be like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, you know, <laughs> we're getting older. Like, why are we dealing with this bullshit? You know, um, so it, maybe that's a Absolutely. litmus test a little bit to, to make sure that like you have what it takes to like handle those. Because honestly, if someone like after a tour like that was like, you know what? Not for me. I would never hold that against. Them. I'm like, yeah, dude, this is definitely not for everybody. You have to be a little bit like, you know, wrong in the head to think that this is OK. That, that's dude, that's that's kind of what i was trying to hint at earlier is the belief in something it's like you yeah. guys put down on paper basically like we're, we're not making money this was like 2010 2011 it's like there's not really money in this we don't know what it's going to be but what i had and what you guys had was fuck just belief belief in yeah. in the product and belief can cause you to do some you know really foolish illogical things and you know all these things that you're describing it's like jake moving from new york to sleep on a couch for for something that probably wasn't going to pan out percentage wise you know nothing's going to happen with that yeah we met on aol instant messenger <laughs> there you go hey you like mashuga i like mashuga too <laughs> let's move in together Love you, man. i mean 
I kind of feel like you just have to make those kinds of moves in order to make unrealistic things happen. You have to take unrealistic actions, I guess. You have to be willing to lose it all. I mean, when I started URM, I quit my production career cold turkey one day, like completely. And I had a house too that I had to get rid of. And I went from doing real well to literally zero the next month. And URM didn't start making like enough money to replace that income for well into two years. So it was like two years of scary shit, but I never had the thought, what the hell am I doing here or anything like that? It just seemed like the right move. And I had complete faith in it the entire time, but it took destroying the life I had before that. And I just think that that's part of it, man. I definitely think that's part of it. These kinds of careers, a band or something entrepreneurial or whatever, they take your full attention. I think you have to be all in. I mean, I'm sure we can find examples of people who did it on the side, but I think that, you know, like it's a side hustle that got big or something, but I think that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I would argue that uh, the right place, right time applies anytime you're starting anything. Like I can just use URM, for example. If we had started earlier, the technology would not have been able to support what we were doing. Like, I mean, maybe if we had creative live money, but we didn't. So the technology of something that we could just pull together the way that me, Joey and Joel did at the beginning was not available earlier. So we couldn't have done it as well as we did it earlier. But if we had done it later, I believe someone else would have done it first. So I feel like the right time just matters, period, in life. And, uh, and there is an element of luck to the timing thing. Like, you have to be, like, you can't be ready to do something and then wait five years, right? Uh, so there has to be that element of luck that you are ready to do the thing and go all in at the same time that uh, the universe is lined up for you or whatever. And that, you know, you kind of don't have much control over that. But I've, I've always said, I've always said like luck. And I, I, I think people hate when I say this, but I feel strongly about this is that like luck, such a massive factor. You know, there's so many elements that you just don't control, but that's maybe the wrong way to look at it as like a bad thing. It's just, that is, that just is. So it's more like, and I think the thing that we can all agree on is like, there was a decision made at some point where we were like, well, I've got to try. I know the odds are against me, but could I really live with myself if I didn't, you know? Yeah. And, and um, for a lot of people, I mean, again, this is the illogical move to make. And, and I'd say, you know, someone in Mark's position really stands to lose a lot more. Like, Jake and I at that time had no prospects. We were going to be fucking drifters. We'd be homeless together somewhere, you know? <laughs> like we, we had our practice and everything. But, like, but Mark had, like, actual stability. He sacrificed quite a lot. And I think, you know, in my mind, it was always like, well, if this fails, I'll figure something else out, you know? Like... Uh, I don't know exactly what, what you were thinking, Mark, and maybe you can like give us some insight. But like for, for me, it was always just like I would rather do this and fail and at least know that I fucking gave it a shot. You know, and then I can be like, well, I, I fucking tried. I really, really gave it my best shot and just wasn't in the cards. Things didn't line up. But, you know, I, I'm glad I'm glad I can at least move forward knowing like, hey, I tried, you know, and there's a lot of things that I've fucking failed at. Um 
which which I feel that way about where I'm like, hey, well, fucking gave it my best shot and it just wasn't meant to be, you know? And there's some peace in that. I think it boils down to your level of comfort with the prospect of failure, right? Like if failure scares you to death in all walks of life, you are never going to try anything. Like you, like you're afraid of getting hit by a car, you're not going to walk out of your front door. Uh, it's, it's that sort of multiplied exponentially with, the, with something like this. But it's like, I remember thinking at that time, like, if this fails, if this doesn't pan out, am I cool with that? And the answer was a resounding, yeah. Like, I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with having taken a real fair, honest shot at this and have it not work out. Uh, and, and I think that's what, what it boils down. And it, and it goes down to, like, even now not really giving a shit if something fails or is poorly received. Like we've put out songs before we've put out lead tracks from records that were met with a lukewarm reaction. Like that song, the scourge from juggernaut. Yeah. Uh, like uh, we put that song out and knowing that it was very much not in line with what periphery was on periphery Two, being okay with that. And you know, we come to find out that, yeah, the fans didn't quite warm up to it the way we had hoped for that. We thought they were going to, but again, we are okay with that. And I think that still counts for our decisions on a day-to-day basis in peripheries. Like, do we believe in it strongly? Yes. That's kind of all that matters. And if, and if it fails, if it doesn't work out, then we have to be all right with that. Yeah. I'm kind of at this point with the band and I don't know if this sounds weird or bad or anything, but like, (laughs) Uh I'm so happy like that we got to this point that if it ended tomorrow, I would be like, all right, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that was Dude, sick. I feel exactly the same yeah. way. That's, yeah. that's well said. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. If I got hit yeah. by a truck, like, sitting in my room right now, just like a truck came out. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen those pictures of, like, a car in, like, the second-story yeah. window of a house? It's like, <laughs> how did this, like... What had to happen for that to take? They were playing place? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but but it, but it's very true. Like, if uh, I think about this a lot, I mean, I think uh, some of it just comes from like you know the way I was brought up, and like my mom can be kind of neurotic about stuff. Like, oh, you know, don't forget, you could be, you could lose everything, you'll be poor tomorrow, you know, you'd be homeless tomorrow. So like, there's always this thing in the back of my head, but it's like it, if it ended tomorrow, like. First off, Periphery's gone so much further than than I ever planned or hoped for. You know, I, you know, I always try to have like sort of realistic expectations for this, and like this is even beyond like like dream stuff because I remember just thinking, oh, I'm getting a van and like tour. Like I don't even care if we lose money. Like so, anything beyond that is just bonus. So if it ended tomorrow for whatever reason, I'd be like, fuck, we had a we had a great run. Like that's amazing that that happened. I obviously wanted to go as long as I can, and I think we're all having a lot of fun with it. But I think that that affords us some freedom because I think when you have this thing of like, oh my god, like I have this thing I want to maintain. Like, how do we get to the next level? Like, uh, how do we make sure we don't like lose fans or or whatever? It's like then it's kind of like we were talking about before. It's like you're you're focusing on something that isn't music. You're focusing on something that isn't like the whole reason you started the band, which was. To just do creative shit with your 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 friends. Do hood rat shit with hood your, rat shit with your friends. <laughs> I want to key in on something you just said. Focusing on something that isn't music. But you do focus on a lot of stuff that isn't music. So how do you differentiate, I guess, between the right stuff that isn't music versus shit that's a distraction? What would you 
be calling the right stuff that isn't music? Like, what would that be to you? The right stuff, like your business focus, obviously has been the right stuff because it has enabled you to do what you're doing with your music. That's something we're passionate about as well. And something, okay, so here's the thing. I think we've got a very clear vision about a lot of aspects of the band. And it's the reason why we've always self-produced. And when we've worked with a producer, it hasn't quite worked because, you know, I've produced bands. And I think producers can be very, very useful when you have like sort of all of this like like this really raw talent and it just needs to be shaped and they may not have quite the vision. They need someone to help shape it. Right. But when you've got that, then like then then you don't need that help there. And in in the same way, like we've got a very specific vision for the business. And that's why a lot of managers might not have been right. But our manager fucking gets it, you know, so like he's just enhancing our vision and helping us and facilitating uh, and expediting the process on a lot of these things. So like with that, that's something that I guess on some levels we're as passionate about as the music, but what they don't do is interact. Like we wouldn't, the music always comes first. Like when we do these writing sessions, we're not thinking about the fans. We're not thinking about album sales. We're not thinking about the reaction. We're thinking about like how it makes us feel. And as I always said, it's like really easy to write a periphery album because we just have to be honest. It's like, is that cool? Yes or no? doesn't matter what style of music it is. It could be like way fucking out there. But if we think it's cool, then that's it. If we don't think it's cool, then either fix it or ditch it. And that's it. That's that's how you write a periphery album. I mean, would you guys agree with that? Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the key to how we write together. It's it's an, it's always how it makes us feel. That's all. And the other thing I want to point out is like we talk about how it will feel live, too. And with like a light show and like these are other considerations. And, you know, like we'll write a part and we'll be like, oh, like we can't wait to see what Jeff does with this with this light show. And it's you know, these are all just different ways of just kind of expressing how it makes us feel. And that's why it's effortless. Because then there's these moments like, like that we've written that like, you know, that's the experience like from being like just a studio band on like periphery one to like actually playing shows and experiencing things and like more production. Like now we know we have a light show, we have sound that we can rely on and whatever. Like we know that there's a level that that we can deliver at. So like there, there are these things that like, you know, we have an inkling like, oh, this is going to hit a certain way live, you know, uh, and whether it's like between us and the audience or us, like I'll look at the band and we're like rocking out. But like then sometimes, not always, but sometimes it like comes together just the way I think. And like that feeling, that feeling is fucking special. I don't really have the words uh, to describe that feeling, but that is something that I chase and that I consider to be worth chasing. So that's why business never interacts with any of this stuff, because this shit is so much more important to me and so much more gratifying than like if we make more fans or if, you know, we have a radio hit or anything like that. Like what we're looking for is like quite abstract. But but so, we know when we find it. So I have a tracking question because uh, you know normally we only have one guitar player on, but uh, you know now we have three. So I'm just switching gears here. One thing that comes up a lot in the studio with bands is uh, who plays what, and I think that with smaller bands you get a lot of prideful bullshit that gets in the way. But in any band, there's going to be people's strengths. And people's weaknesses there's going to be stuff that certain musicians are better at than others and um i've noticed that the bands that uh the bands that stick around um you know this communication thing you guys talk about it 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 kind of permeates everything they do all the way to when they're in the studio and uh, there's an understanding about who's going to do what so that said um how do you guys decide like 
who's playing what riff. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> if it's hard, we make Mark play it. One take, both sides. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I actually do, by the way. I play so tight. <laughs> I play so tight that both tracks are tracked, and the album is actually finished the moment I stop recording. The second track <laughs> appears on the... It's, I don't understand it to this day, but it's efficient. One take. No fuck-ups. No, I mean, honestly, uh, I think my philosophy, our philosophy is just whoever can play it best. I, I think for Juggernaut, like, you know, Nolly was still in the band, and he was literally playing my riffs better than I was. I was like, just fucking track it. Like, it'll sound sicker. Like, we just want everything to sound good. So I don't care if someone, if someone can play my riff and it'll sound better. Like, fucking less work for me. <laughs> like, I, don't, I think the, the, general, the general rule of thumb is if you wrote it, you're going to track yeah. it. And, and yeah, in the rare case, like what Misha says, it's like if there's a certain part that like another guy in the band can do better, then they'll, they'll get the guitar for that moment. But yeah, for the most part, if you wrote it, you're going to track it. That's pretty logical. It's a chore. Yeah. <laughs> and, our styles, and our styles are all so distinct that like it kind of can't really work any other way because Misha does moves that do not come second nature to me. They're like, it's like ninth or 10th nature, maybe. Look who's fucking talking here, right? <laughs> and same, same, same thing with Jay. It's like, it's like I, there's just, there's certain parts that kind of have to be played and tracked if we're trying to, to do things for, for time's sake, you know what I mean? Because I'm sure I could sit there and play one of Jake or Misha's riffs and track it, but it would take me, you know, 80 or 90 times to get right the way they wrote it in their head. You know what I mean? I, I do know exactly what you mean. I kind of went through that a lot uh, in my own band because, um, you know, other guitar players fucking phenomenal. But I always wanted him to track stuff because he's amazing. But there were just certain things where it's like, well, it would just be quicker for me to do it because I wrote it. I understand how it's supposed to go. That that's all there is to it, really. Yeah, I'll put it this way: we like writing, we don't like tracking, so we're trying to make that process as painless and quick as possible. So, whatever person needs to play it to make it the least amount of time spent tracking, that's that's how it's gonna happen. There's no ego there. Having Nolly in the studio was definitely like a little cheat code. It was like having a secret weapon because it's like, <laughs> dude, yeah, like, having like, Nolly there was a great. gnarly, <laughs> like, like hair blowing in the wind harmonic right now. Could you do that real quick, Nolly? And then he would just spit it out, and then we pass the guitar along, business as usual. He he's a great guitar player, right? He's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, he's phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal guitar player. Like, kind of perfect yeah. technique. Like the, just his finger tone, the way he sounds, like it's it's pretty much. He's what got you that. Be he's got that for, like Wes how quality of playing. Where it's yes, yeah. yeah. Him and Wes are like that. That like ultra clean, no wasted noise or motion. Like everything's just. Like, I swear to God, the way he plays a chord sounds better than me. You know, like he could just strike a chord in a way where it rings out. And I'm like, I swear we're playing, you know, I grab the guitar. I'm like, I swear I'm doing the exact same thing as you and it doesn't sound as good. So, yeah, I mean, if he was here, I'd be pounding off all my riffs. I'd be like, here's how you play it. And just he would just fucking track it because it would sound better. It always felt really shitty to, like, have him track you doing a solo. You know, like, like yeah. when he would sit there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, Nolly. I'd be vibrato. like, yeah, fumbling around, like, the easiest part of a solo. And he'd just be, it'd be like fucking, like, like having Freddie Mercury track your vocals. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> He was always super nice about it too. Like he never, yeah. he, he would always be very encouraging and cool about it. But it it is hard to, you know, be around him knowing his skills and like, you know, wondering what's going on up in that noggin. And he'd track a lead and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, why don't I sound like that? Like it'd be simple. It'd be a simple lead, but like just so much character in every note. Like, I don't know. It's just, 
in the studio, you hear so much detail, as you know, to where it's just like, it's not about ego at that point. It's like, he's just going to get the job done. Let's fight. And it'll sound great. Like, I want it to sound like that. Not like how I play it. Hey, man, that's not how I talk. Can you talk how I talk? <laughs> it's weird when uh, when you're used to the way you play things and mix things, and then you hear somebody else that's just better do it, like mix something you were mixing or play something that you were having trouble with. And it's just, it's not a little bit better. It's a lot better. Like you've never heard, you couldn't imagine it being this good before. Um, I think that's pretty cool, actually. I love yeah, it. I've no, seen, it's, I've I seen love people get crushed it. by that, but I like it. It's inspirational. No, it keeps you on your toes. It's like what I aim for. I'm like, I need to make it sound like that. You know, and I, I literally changed my picking technique over it. <laughs> like, because <laughs> I was like, I don't sound enough like, like Nolly when I'm like alt picking. I need to so spend a year and a half changing my picking technique just to be a bit more like that. Yeah. What, what also sucks for us is when it comes time to tour or like debut songs at a new set list for an upcoming tour, we have to learn each other's riffs, which, you know, yep. as we've said before, we all have pretty different styles. And those were, those were some of the toughest moments, like learning some of these fucking alien riffs that these dudes spit out that, do, that don't come naturally to me at all. Once again, you're one to speak because, dude, some of the shit that we've been writing, I'm like, I guess we're going to figure this out later. <laughs> Sounds like I'll probably be playing some of this shit. That sucks. <laughs> Keeps you on your toes, though. Like, you know, I, I, because these guys are always pushing themselves, it pushes me. And then there's kind of like this cyclical kind of inspiration going on within the band and and i think we get better because of it that's kind of that yeah. is the, kind of the beautiful part of it like what makes what makes the you know the painstaking shit kind of worth it is that yeah like at the end of the day you come out having learned new moves learning new tricks and and uh constantly feeling like you're you know breaking some threshold in your playing oh 100 i've like i feel like i've like become way better just from having to learn your guys's fucking weird alien riffs same so when it comes to learning other people's riffs, what is it? Just repetition? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, if it's kind of funny the way that I do it, like, I don't know, I, I'm not really like a, a traditional musician in any sense of the word. So I'm just like, kind of like, okay, so you put your hand here and then you move it up here and you do one of these little things. And like, I kind of piece it together in this really like, you know, caveman-esque way. And it takes a lot longer probably than somebody who like knows what they're doing, but it seems to, it, it's worked thus far. Yeah. We have, our, we have our, I mean, we just send videos. Unfortunately, none of us, you know, can read music or like no theory or anything like that. So we have our, we all have fairly strong ears. So we just kind of rely on that and like videos or just explanations. So it's just, you make a video, uh, like you'll make a video for Mark and it's like, this is your part. We'll do like, like we it used to be called Skype back in the yesteryears but uh I, i've we'll heard do, of it I've we'll do uh, we'll do zoom calls or whatever and like literally like just record it from our phones or whatever <laughs> just all right yeah yeah play that real quick yeah and that's this part you know it's pretty it's pretty low tech in a way but like um it works you know when we used to live in the same area we would uh we'd just meet up and do that but like and still capture videos so that we could make sure that we learn it the right way and not blame me for teaching someone the wrong <laughs> they play it the wrong way for like two, three years. <laughs> Not gonna name names. <laughs> so it's happened. <laughs> so can you guys say anything at all about the writing sessions? 
I mean, if you can't, you can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they what were fun. <laughs> All right, they were fun. You wrote shit. Yeah, we, they were very productive. When I got home. You know, we we have all our files in one space that we can all kind of like listen to. And um, I was like, we like that much stuff came out. Like it just felt like we were hanging out and making jokes most of the time. So it was it was really cool. And the music, just having reflected on it for the past week. For, first of all, I mean, we were all completely exhausted by the end because uh, the last night of writing, we pulled an all nighter. Like none of us slept at all. Yeah, you guys had an early flight. Yeah, we just, we kept going. Um, I mean, actually, Misha was working on a section, a pretty fucking wacky section. It uh, is wacky. Yeah, that he didn't stop till I want to say like 3.30 in the morning. And then at 4, we had, 4.15, we had to go to the airport. And uh, yeah, just having reflected on on uh, the material, it's um, it's pretty all over the place. Like, it's fucking all over the place. It's, it's, it's all really, over the place, yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what makes a cut. You know, one thing that we did, which I really like, is like Spencer was part of... Normally what we do is like the three of us will write... Like Matt kind of trusts me with programming the beats. And I also, you know, he'll he'll have input and then he'll just go to the studio and fucking track it. And it's going to be awesome. And we've been doing that system for so long that just we don't question it. Like, that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. But Spencer would kind of... Like, we would put together like ideas that flow into one another. We could call it an arrangement, but we kind of make a conscious decision not to get attached to it as an arrangement. So Fair that enough. like when it changes, we're not like, Oh, this is, you know, that's kind of something that we learned is like, anytime something's different than what you you're used to, you'll be like, Oh, that sucks. Not because it sucks, but just, you just got used to it. Right. And it actually stops you from being objective about what could potentially be a better change for the song. Mm-hmm. And we, we try to like sort of shield ourselves from that a little bit. So what we did this time is we actually had Spencer here for uh, the writing sessions that he would normally get it after and like rearrange it or chop it up on his end. And, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there now. Like for most of this, he was actually here helping us arrange. And rather than like having to do it after the fact, he's like, no, like, I think we need something here. Like that actually sounds like the chorus and it's all stuff that we would be doing after the fact, but now we can kind of get used to it with him being like, yeah, I think this is how the vocals will work. It's not to say it won't get chopped up. It very well may once he starts to write. And we'll probably be involved with with the the vocal writing as well, you know, to some degree, because that's always fun. Like uh, it used to be him and I would like go into a mic like this and just like sing gibberish and whisper scream gibberish. I'm useless at lyrics, but like I can help with like rhythms and with melody lines and whatever. And, you know, that's how we did like a lot of P3 and like pretty much all of P4. So I think this time we're going to try and have like the whole band there if possible. Um, there was a cool thing about this session that I, I, it may have happened before. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but like, I feel like this was like the first time we had, uh, something with Spencer's vocals on it during the oh, writing yeah. session. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Late night lots. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we don't usually have any Spencer stuff until after we have a solidified arrangement. You know, he takes time to sit with it, but we, you know, he, there was an existing demo that he kind of chopped up and, and put his own stamp on. And we were able to import those vocals into what we were working on. And we kind of, you know, merge the two ideas and it's just, and then I wrote to his vocals, yeah, which was really cool. That was something that I don't get to do usually at this stage. Like if I do that, it would be like super late in the process because vocals are one of the last things we get. So that's a really good point we did. And that wasn't yeah, even so a yeah. periphery idea. That was just something that like I did like this sort of, sort of like rock demo. It had nothing to do with periphery. It wasn't supposed to be that. He liked it. He put vocals to it. And, uh, you know, 
it just so happened that everyone's like, oh, we should work on this. And it kind of came to life. And now, and now I think the idea is very strong. Like, and I don't care if it really sounds like a typical periphery idea or not, because it probably doesn't, but it's sick. <laughs> so that, that passes the test. Well, I'm sure everyone is going to be stoked to hear it. And uh, I'm curious what it is that you guys aren't allowed to spill the beans on. So I'm sure that's going to be awesome. I mean, you know, people can figure it out. Yeah, they'll figure it out. We have dedicated fans. The silence is the most quiet we've been for the past two hours because this is all, all of us like like yeah. silently in conflict <laughs> with ourselves to like yeah decide how much we're gonna share with everybody. But no, it's okay. No, no pressure or anything. I'm sure it'll all make sense. We've told you more than we've told anyone else, so you know that's true. Well, there's that. Thank you. Flattered. These types of podcast episodes where there's a lot of people can become a circus sometimes like they're not usually cool because people just talk over each other and interrupt and just you guys totally are respectful of each other and let each other talk and it was totally easy so that tells me a lot about how you how you guys probably work together thanks yeah i, I appreciate that sentiment i you know it, it, something that we should note about that is that that's many many years in the making <laughs> and i don't know if we've always been that good at it but no. <laughs> but yeah like you know these guys are my brothers so you know we always we always respect each other's space and we we, we learned that pretty pretty early in doing this it's like oh yeah there are a lot of cooks in this kitchen we better like learn to give each other their space yeah that's a good point same goes for the writing too man and that was one of my like I don't know why I always get a little bit nervous before every album because I'm like, fuck, like we haven't written together in several years. Like for this one, I actually had to say to myself, like, damn, it's been a long time since we wrote Periphery 4. You know, like the writing sessions were done when Misha was still in D.C. So this was like, what, 2017, I think, right? 2018. 2018. 2018? Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, like I'm always like, damn, do we still... Like I question the chemistry because it's been so long, you know what I mean? And but then day one, it's like, oh, there it is. And in fact, it's stronger than it was last time. It's always <laughs> this, this really reassuring thing that like the chemistry continues to to improve in the writing session. I, that's one thing I took away from this past ten day uh, writing session for the record. It's just like this really good feeling about. I just a really fortunate feeling. Like thank God that we have this chemistry because that is the most scarce thing uh, in this in this world that we live in. I, I told you guys I was nervous. I think I took you aside. I was like, guys, I'm pretty, I feel like this is daunting, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, the, what was daunting about it other than just the thing we the can't talk that, about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> give it I think, I think, I, I think like everyone can read between the lines, especially yeah. people who know us and know what we're like and they'll figure it out. I just want to feel like I'm I'm contributing and like I always I don't know I just feel like sometimes I'm not bringing a lot to the table so like Horsh I just, <laughs> I just but well I'm just saying like that's like how that's how I felt like going into the session and like I was just worried that like I'd be falling short of expectation um, not like of the fans but of the band <laughs> like you know so it's like these like there 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 are only a few people in this world I care about disappointing you know, uh, and those are the people I don't, I really don't want to disappoint. So I was just trying to like get myself into a good headspace or whatever. But then as Mark said, like, as soon as we like actually got to it, like it just fell into place. I find myself like getting, like, that's kind of how my mind works. Like people, 
ask like like if I get nervous about shows, it's like I get nervous about getting nervous about shows. Or I get nervous about shows like <laughs> like a week before them. If I know like oh like big big headliner in London, like it's nerve wracking. But by the time we're going on stage, it's like we're in it. It's like there's, we're 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 going. You know, like I'm not nervous. I'm excited at that point. It's like kind of the same thing. I was like super nervous for this session and had a lot of like just worries that like I was gonna fall short. But then like as the the chemistry and the dynamic came in, it was like I didn't have time to be nervous. I was like, oh, ideas, ideas, fucking let's let's go, let's go. And the excitement just takes over, and um, and it's all kind of a blur. We, there's two, you know, I, I think like I chase this. I think we all kind of do, but like when. When the chemistry is going, and there's like ideas just bouncing, like genuinely bouncing. There's no ego. It's just we're, we're hearing the thing come to life. We all like kind of enter this flow state, and we're we're just watching this thing happen. This thing like appear before our very eyes, almost. It's almost like we're just passengers, and and we do this thing called just following the thread. You know, it's like what led to that weird late late night. Like I was like, okay, I hear something kind of wild. I'm gonna try for it, and it's like well, let's just follow the thread, see where it goes. And it's fucking weird, and definitely not what I would have expected to be there or, or, or necessarily even appropriate. But if I, I, I really like the way it came out, I'm kind of proud of it, but sometimes you follow the thread and you know it's terrible or whatever. And you just ditch it, but sometimes it's really worth it. And it leads to some of the more unique moments. Cause just like, okay, this is kind of off the wall, but fuck it. Let's, let's see where it goes. Like we have time. We, we don't have any goals for what we need to write. Like, Oh, and that's the other thing is like, we, we kind of agreed like, there's no like quota that we need to achieve. I was like, if we fucking write zero, at least we got some good hangs. You know, we got something uh, going. And of course, like we we wrote quite a bit, but not having the pressure of like, oh, you know, uh, we have 10 days. We need to do, you know, eight songs or whatever. Oh, God, we're a few short like that. That's unnecessary stress. So we just kind of like, yeah, whatever we get done, like we, we get done. Um, so those those kind of three things. How how do you have that kind of attitude? Adderall. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what kind of attitude you would have otherwise. No, I guess I have what I, what I mean. No, about disassociating yourself from the outcome. Because I some find really it difficult. A, to some do really that. exciting things lie there. You know, like when you're in this flow state and you're just watching this stuff happen. It's like, it's why. Like I'd say every time we've started an album, we've probably had some vision of it. Like I think, like when we went to P4, like. I was like, yeah, we should go like kind of like more ambient and experimental. It ended up being like one of our darkest and heaviest albums. It's like for all our intents, like it just didn't go that way. And it, but like it went away and we just were like, well, I like what I like what's going on. Let's see where this goes. And and like that exploration and finding out where it goes, like that's so exciting. And sometimes it doesn't work. But when it does work, it's like very gratifying as well. It's like, whoa, like. It's a completely different direction. When it doesn't work, it can be kind of backbreaking. And and that's something that I've actually personally dealt with. And it's like, it's why, I mean, these guys have solo records, right? Like they have solo products. I've always like, I've always kind of waffled on that idea because it's something that just on a personal level, like when things, when things don't work out, like I chase a thread and then it kind of sounds like shit while I'm chasing it and I get demoralized uh, and then I have trouble seeing it through. And that's something that I, I think I've gotten better at. And and maybe you could attribute some of like I I've, I've been guilty of like overwriting before like I write shit that's like maybe too naughty or kind of meant to impress in the moment without really like having a vision of what it's going to be and when it starts to like not sound that great I kind of flounder and lose that vision so I'm, that's something I'm trying to get better at 
is, uh, is hold on to what that could be uh, and not be so demoralized when things don't, don't work out, you know? So uh, I think like the one thing that I wanted to mention about kind of not having any expectations for the, for the session is I think that's, that's how it works. Cause we trust the process. We trust our chemistry then and not forcing it is really important to us because then it kind of takes on this like feeling of oh we got to like work and we got to force this out otherwise we're not meeting an expectation and that's when the fun go- which is why we do this the, the 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 very basic reason why we do this is because it's fun and enjoyable it, that needs to stay present. So trusting the process, me trusting Misha and Mark to do what they do and them trusting me to do what I do is, you know, I think that's probably why this works and and why we're okay with saying like, well, if we don't have anything to show for it, you know, the, the process didn't work this one time, but that hasn't happened yet. So that's why I keep trusting it. You know, it what, keeps working. Jake, you know, it sucks. Like, okay. Think about this. Think about when we first wrote that song Reptile, which I, I think we can all say is like what we're kind of most proud of in our in our in our songwriting uh, yeah. you know, career is like we're all really proud of that song because it, it is kind of the the perfect example of, of what Misha mentioned is chasing a thread, right? Like there's there's it's in this fucked up tuning, there's electronic sections in the song, there's like ambient sections. It just goes to all these places. Um, that you never think the song would go when it first begins. And like, if we were to finish that song and be super proud of it, which we were, and we showed it to Misha and, or sorry, to, to Matt and Spencer, and they just gave the thumbs down and be like, that's, that's not a good feeling, you know? But like, I, I think there comes an understanding as you're working on it that like this could end up on the cutting room floor. This could end up going nowhere. Yeah. I remember showing it to them and like the, pit i was feeling in my stomach i'm like oh oh god i hope they fucking like it because we had no intention for that song to be so long we thought it was done after like five minutes but it was like oh i we have ideas we have ideas let's keep let's keep going seeing where where it's going you know it just didn't feel done you know we all kind of you know we all kind of know when the song feels done it said what it's need to say or if it's like oh there's a little more i have an idea that one just kept fucking going and it was like shit this is the first song we're writing for p4 and like spencer and matt like have no idea <laughs> like <laughs> they think we've just been like working on a song like yeah we have a song to show you and we didn't tell them how long it was um we just sat them there to listen to it's it it's a 16 minute long song and like i think like halfway through and, and i strategically like put put it so they couldn't see the song and there and i got rid of any time markers so it would just be like bars and like the the project wouldn't move when they would listen to it so that like they wouldn't know how much time had passed. I think like halfway through like the eight or nine minute mark, like Spencer was like, "It's kind of a long one, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> tell, I'm tell like, them, "Oh yeah, I guess so." <laughs> tell, tell him the one, the most important thing that you that you asked of Spencer before he sat down to listen. Oh yeah, to it. we made sure that he smoked weed. I was like, anything to do, to, anything we could do to just make this sound a little sweeter. I was I was like petrified because I was like. It's a long fucking song. We, we, we yeah. felt so proud of it. We're like, fuck, like this was hitting all the marks. It's like making me feel things. It's like, I'm, I'm like getting chills just thinking about certain parts live. I'm getting some vocal ideas. We're getting ideas for lights. You know, we're, we're seeing the whole picture and like two fifths of our band doesn't know this song exists. <laughs> and like 
although we're not supposed to get attached to arrangements, I felt like we generally had a really strong arrangement. And it actually didn't change that much. A couple repeats here, there, a couple little things that actually Spencer tweaked to make a lot better, in my opinion. But it was generally what we'd put down. And it was like, fuck, like, this could this could end up on the cutting room. This could be like, not for this one, guys. Like, this is not what we're feeling. So I was just like, how do we fucking make this as unimposing you know you tell someone they're gonna listen to a song at 16 minutes it's like i don't want to fucking listen to that that's way too long for a song it's like all right opeth why don't you just yeah, chill out like, chill the fuck out <laughs> song should be like three four minutes long in my opinion so like that's a really tall order to tell someone to listen to a song that long so we were just trying to trick them into liking it and luckily we, we tricked them but <laughs> weed makes music better yes yes it kind of does, does. Yes, it kind of kind of does so we so so the good news is they they liked it um uh, and and that got to that got to end up on the album, and it's one of if not my favorite song to play live. Like that song fucking rules live. <laughs> yeah, lots of fun. Like, yeah, that's dude. a good that's a good fun song. So I am an idiot. Like I started to end the episode and then realized, but we've got some questions from the audience. Oh, that's totally um, fine. Yeah, cool. yeah, I got time. Awesome. I just spaced on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try to avoid questions that you probably get asked all the time, but. You guys get asked so many questions that you probably get asked all of these all the time. So bear with me. First one is from uh, Brian Turner. How do you guys decide what material will be used for your solo projects and what will be used for periphery? Do you sit down with the intent of writing for a specific project or do you just write and then later decide what the idea will be used for? Mm. I mean, personally, I just write, but periphery gets priority. Plus, like, there's the beauty of, like, if, like, uh, like if it becomes a periphery song, like, it might get played live, like, you get to see it in all these other contexts, you get to experience it in all these other contexts. But there are so many songs I was like, or ideas where I'm like, oh, that might be a periphery thing and just never gets picked up or just never really works. And then there's things that are, like, just completely out of left field, like songs like Crush or, like, even the one that, that, that Spencer did vocals for where I'm like, this was not, this was actually specifically not supposed to be periphery. But everything's up for grabs, especially if there's like a strong thing, you know, like Spencer's done vocals and everyone feels strongly about it. It's like, well, yeah, then let's let's fucking use it. You know, that's great. But I think I just write. I don't know about you guys. For me, it's a bit easier because I write primarily electronic music. I, I write riffs, too, but I don't really record them. Um, just because it's not really uh, I like bringing my riffs to Misha and Mark because they can kind of like give me like the thumbs up or thumbs down if it's kind of cool and, and it inspires them. And, you know, they'll usually have their own take on it. And I like when I like when they produce what I what I bring to the table. But, you know, with the electronic stuff, if the guys like it, it's it's peripheries. Like like Misha said, the stuff that I write is always like the priority is is what periphery wants. Periphery gets. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the, the electronic stuff is just kind of easy to keep separate from periphery with with haunted shores like when when i okay i open up a project uh and i start writing i generally don't know i just write to write but i i usually know pretty quick uh and with in the case of haunted shores it's usually dictated by the drums and and, and the bpm <laughs> and, the, and the bpm like there's 271 <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i tend to write pretty fast when it comes to haunted shores and like there's right hand stuff which i know it's kind of lends itself to more like you know black metal death metal uh kind of tonalities in, in certain riffs and that's when i i generally like okay this is for haunted shores but 
I mean, there has been like sentient glow, which was on Periphery Horror, but that was an old Haunted Shores song. And Scarlet, Scarlet, Scarlet was another one. And I guess the same rule that 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 Jake said, like, would you know, like if Periphery wants it, I'm always up discussion. Periphery just took another one. Yeah, thanks to Boo. Yeah, there's a a new song that uh, may or may not make the new Periphery record that me and Misha wrote called Thanks Nobuo. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> the Final Fantasy worship JRPG sounding song. It sounds like a rock cover of an existing like Nobuo song, but it's not a Nobuo song. Yeah. But it could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that it's just like yeah. I think it's funny because I think like a few of us were like, what if we use this? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be sick? And yeah. like and I was like, Mark, are you down? Because I was like, I'm down. <laughs> Yeah. And, and and that's that's just how it happens. The thing is, again, like Haunted Shores, I think, is done with the freedom of knowing that we'll never have to play this shit live. So we yeah. just go fucking balls to the wall with some of that stuff. But like, you know, generally speaking, any of the stuff that's more sort of mid-tempo or, or like the, the other style songs to kind of contrast it, like can sometimes be good for uh, for periphery. And it means like it might get played live. Like I thanks to Boo, I think would be really really fucking sick live you know that'd be, yeah, be yeah, yeah. kind of epic you know yeah so uh so it's like now they could take on a whole other life potentially so that's that's also the beauty of it it's like periphery can you know it can give the song like sort of legs in a way that it wouldn't have if it stayed in yeah. one of the other projects but if there's a, a song at 271 bpm with trim picking and like blast beats, and blast beats with double whole kicks way. under them it's like that's probably not gonna fly Matt's just like i quit <laughs> yeah. i quit <laughs> that first that first reptile riffs a fucking doozy man thank you Jake's, it's funny because they're, they're, they're like similar, but the reptiles slash garden and the bones break. That one is sick. Yeah. Where, where Jake's yeah. so like, like, it's just you and the, you know, that riff that builds up. <laughs> I was like, fuck man, that's a riff. Yeah. Just every now. And like, there's one section that Jake wrote where I was just like, motherfucker, I should have written that. <laughs> like, that's a good one. I'm stealing. I'm just going to tell everybody I wrote that. And they'll believe me. On this this last session? Oh, yeah. On Clench Your Butt Cheeks. <laughs> no, no, no. Mamers. Uh, the Mamers. The Mamers. Oh, yeah. It is on, it's on the Mamers. Yeah, that's well, right. Well, that, that's an important thing to mention about that, that riff. Because, like, Mark keeps bringing these new tunings to us. And it, like, keeps fucking our life up. Yeah. But, it like, it, like produces, like, really, like, stuff that I... I was just like experimenting with this tuning and, you know, Mark is like starting to master it and, and, you know, Misha's experimenting with it too. And it's like, anytime we start screwing with a new tuning places, we haven't really tread before start appearing. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a cool little side note about this last session. What riff are you most proud of, Misha? Yeah. I, I'm not proud of any riff I write. Pass. I relate. Can I say one of my favorite Misha riffs? Sure. Yes. That song Zero. Oh, yeah. The Billy Corgan one, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's an instrumental song on, like, one of our EPs, but, like, there's, like, so many sick Misha riffs in there that it's, like, kind of hard to pick one. I'd say that, like, has some of your, my favorite riffing of yours in it. So funny. I feel like everyone hated that fucking song, too. I was, like, I was like kind of <laughs> proud of that song, and then, like, it was just, like, nah, I shouldn't be proud of this. I don't think it's very good. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really like that one. Well, thanks, Jakey. Yeah, I would, I would have to say... Yeah, Mish, that, uh, like, most of the riffs in, in J.I. and G off Periphery 2, those eight-string riffs, all oh, over yeah, the place. Oh, yeah, those are pretty weird. All over the place. Uh, and it's not one of those, like, eight-string, you know, ride the low-string Meshuggah worship kind of things. It's just, 
it's all over the place. I always respected the living shit out of that riff. And and Jake probably the middle section of um, Reptile, or it's like sort of like the later sort of there's like a, a orchestral part that kicks in after the focus hour section. You know that riff that you wrote? It's like oh, the Garden and the Bones, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that one's like that's a fucking riff, man. It's clever. It's so clever, and it's like it's not complicated or complex, but it's just like the perfect notes and it's, it's so all the right notes all you know I, I, it's, right funny, it's funny about that one because i'm like you guys were i wrote all like the slow riffs in that song and you guys wrote <laughs> all like all the slow. really six <laughs> tap it all slow yeah <laughs> and i i was playing that and i'm like man this is super low like the guys are gonna fire me if i keep writing shit like this. <laughs> but i'm glad you i'm glad i'm glad it doesn't come off that jake way. said the word loc which is shorthand in our band for local band <laughs> Oh, I, awesome. That's great. And so if, if a riff is really shot, we call it a locness monster riff. I'm just kidding. I just made that one up. Yeah, yeah we'll say it's loke or it's oaf, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of oaf. But oaf, oaf is that cool because there's oaf plenty is cool. of... Oaf is oaf cool. Is oaf. Like, oaf is loke, but cool. What does oaf stand for? Dumb. It's just like It's just like kind of dumb, but like it works. It's like... Say, like in reptile, there's like uh, dan 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 That's an oaf riff. It's yeah. like there's nothing to it, but it just kind of <laughs> works. It's still cool. But it's it's meant to be bludgeoning. It's just oaf. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a caveman holding a turkey leg kind of vibe. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely that. Um, Loke is great. Yeah, yeah. If re- so <laughs> we probably have more hours logged on the guitar playing Loke riffs than anything else because we just kind of out try to outdo each other in a in any writing session i mean would you guys agree to that like probably and maybe mark and i have a competition for most actual like hours logged but like <laughs> you know there there's a lot of loke riffs being played i think we have a compilation of some of that yeah stuff. i started <laughs> I, i'm not i'm not like good at doing it as good as good as these guys are at writing this kind of shit so i just started filming it when they're not paying attention cuz they're just trying to make like the room laugh and so I, I took all these clips and just kind of pasted them all together. And those are going to be our studio updates from now on. It's just they're, they're, they're low. Morthal <laughs> Cash and Beta are a good collection of some good low riffs. Like, that I'm pretty oh, yeah. proud of. I forgot about all, Beta. We should all be proud of those low riffs. Yeah, they're yeah. low yeah. riff collections. Next I, 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 before before we go on because I didn't get to I didn't get to suck Mark off a little. Oh yeah, suck, suck Mark off. Let me let me, <laughs> let me suck Mark off. Uh, the stuff that he's writing for this new album is like kind of on this other level, scary of like how am I gonna play this? I have not seen guitar played like that. Yeah, like he's definitely like taking his vitamins and shit. So. <laughs> It's crazy. So, Mark, stop scaring us, man. <laughs> yeah, that shit. That shit. There's some shit that I'm just like, and and same with new haunted chores. I feel like I'm just like kind of like the producer being like, okay, <laughs> like <laughs> I guess I'll like program drums to this, maybe. <laughs> like I don't really know what to add. Like there's some some crazy shit coming out of uh, out of Mark lately. Thank you guys. Yeah, that means a lot, really. Okay, now now we can now we can move on. Uh, now I, we can let move, me just take right, Mark's right dick out of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> question from instagram uh, from spira du cs i don't know what his name is uh is music as an extension of art and mathematics created or discovered huh i don't understand those those sound like gent lyrics (laughs) 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 
That's great. Okay, next question. <laughs> uh, do you guys talk over who gets to rip a solo in a song, or does someone come with one written? Uh, Mark is going to write all. Uh, Mark and Jake are going to write all future periphery solos. I'm not writing any more solos. That's how that works. <laughs> I refuse. I quit. I guess you don't like writing solos. And Jake's mom's like, my my boy needs more solo time, and then we have to give him a solo or two. Like, uh, she, she's solo? probably you know you're. I I don't know if you're kidding or not, but she's probably said that shit to me before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't work that way, mom. Trust me. <laughs> no, I mean whoever whoever wants it. Like if if there's like a section, we like solos are the last thing we think about. It's more like oh yeah, this section might work or like you know spencer it's spencer have- spencer spencer's like you should put a guitar solo yeah he's like here. i don't i think there yeah. should be a solo here you know because yeah. it'll kind of default i'd rather that it has spencer's vocals or write out instrumentally or something and then like on the occasion that there needs to be a solo and then i'll try to convince either jake or mark that they're the perfect person to write a solo for that section. <laughs> and here's why he's going yeah. to use use car salesman <laughs> mode <laughs> what's your mom's like middle name that's my and everything <laughs> No, as you can tell, we're not climbing on top of each other to uh, to take solos in this band. We're not desperate to take them. But yeah, it's just whatever the song calls for. Uh, yeah, in, in fact, it's almost lately it's taken on this reluctant nature because we know that inevitably it's going to have to be done live, which is also stress inducing. And, and yeah, yada, yada. Oh, yeah, that's what happens. You play them live and like everyone's got their phones out. Like waiting for you yeah. to fuck up. And like <laughs> I'm me, so I do fuck it up. And then I have the added pressure of it being like on someone's like, you know, Dude. Instagram be like, wow, I guess Misha isn't the guitar God that we all thought he was. He's human. It's like, dude, dude, I've been telling you I'm not that good at guitar all along. Why will no one listen to me? And now I have to be embarrassed about it, too. So when we play like a song that has a solo and we play it for the first time, people go and look for it. And usually when we play things for the first time, it's definitely not as good as it's going to be once we had some, you know, weeks of touring. And that's always the damn video that has you know the most views yeah. so people like are like they're just like oh this is this must be what it always sounds like yeah and i'm pretty sure just, like first time we played the bones which has like a pretty exposed solo i was like fucking it up and like there's like comments like oh i guess misha can't play that song i was like fuck that song and that's why we're never gonna play it again <laughs> good job comments <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks comments all right, let's see here. Question from Michael Castro. This one's for you, Mark. Regarding your style of playing with slides and pull-offs to open chords, uh, do you use a metronome to speed up into a passage like when you're working on it? Or did you do that in the beginning, or is that just something that comes to you naturally? That's something I should do more often. Like I always see these guitar players who are way better than I am, they always say, oh, you gotta, you got to practice to a metronome. If you're, not, if you're not playing to a metronome, you're not really practicing. And honestly, man, like I, it's just not something I've ever done. Because uh, most of the time, I'm, I'm, I'm working towards something in the creative realm. I'm not really trying. But you maybe, record to a click, and you I double track. I record to a click, and I feel like that, that is where I become trained. And that's where my sort of... Um, deficiencies timing wise or technique or things that I could clean up. That's when those things expose themselves and I could work on that. But in terms of just sitting there with a practice amp, 99.9% of the time, I'm just, I'm just trying to write, trying to see what comes out. But uh, no, I mean that, that, that kind of those moves in my, uh, in my playing have just come from just freeform jamming, just trying to have fun with the instrument, trying to create something that I think is interesting to the ears. And, and, and that's about it. 
that's kind of cool. You don't hear people say that very often. Yeah, I feel like that's not the the textbook answer that people want to hear. Or, or it's, it's not, or, yeah, which is cool. Yeah, or, but that's why it's cool. I had to say, tracking, tracking is definitely the 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 ultimate sort of uh, exposers of these kinds of things uh, because that will that will become apparent very quickly. And and like I learned, like even back in, in the early Haunted Shores days, like before I was in Periphery, like sitting down to track some of this stuff with Misha, I was like, whoa, some of these moves are really ambitious if I'm trying to stick to a certain feel or if I'm trying to stay on the metronome. Um, so it's kind of this um, this challenge of uh, dialing it back to make it work uh, rhythmically and also just to make it sound tasteful, you know? Because if you overdo it, you start to sound like a gimmick. So it's walking a line. Good answer, thank you question from dusty simmons uh how do the three of you approach combining three guitar parts from a full mix standpoint and for sections that don't have three separate parts playing how does the mix stay even across the board super inspired and always learning new things from you guys i don't know if that's a question for nolly or live sound guy or what but uh it's a good question depends on like what part of recording or playing live or referring to because it it's different between live and, and recording i i don't want to like put misha on the spot but i think he probably has the best understanding because it's all it's always like a compositional thing so i you know if misha if you want to yeah i mean i think we're when we're writing we're not necessarily thinking about writing with like three guitars in mind and there's always sections where it'll be like unison or two parts and then there'll be sections where there's like not not like three guitars can't even cover everything so it's just more like working for what's right for the song, figuring it out live. Live, we have Marquides, who's like, you know, actively panning stuff, and we'll have left, right, slightly off-center live uh, to leave a little bit more space for vocals. Um, Jake will be in the center live. But but that's the sort of default positions, and things will be actively panned around, you know, throughout the song. And in the studio, it's it's not really... Like, it's not like we will necessarily track a third guitar part but a lot of the times that's like appropriate or there'll be counterpoint or something or a layer or something. So it's a tool that we have. Um, but there isn't anything sort of that special, I'd say, that's being done, you know, that's sort of unique because of the third guitarist. Sounds like it's just built into the arrangement. Yeah, it's just it just depends on the part, as, as Jake said. It's not like I think what some people may be asking is like, do we have like a third guitar track in the center? And it's like usually not unless it's like, sort of a layer or, or something like that, you know? Something interesting that, like, uh, we started doing somewhat recently. I, I feel like it's we've been doing it for years now, but yeah. I'm not really sure. It's like we've been doing one of two things. Either Mark and Misha will be on a regular rhythm tone, and then I will be on either an octave rhythm tone, or I'll be on like a split coil position and I'll be playing the same thing that Mark and Misha are, but it just kind of like an octave down. Yeah. Or well, well, Um, like mixed. So it'll be like, it'll be like, you know, pretty strong mix of like the lower octave. Yeah. It'll be mixed. Um, It just has a really cool effect uh, live. And in in the studio, we'll have two tracks of that, but like it just helps it bind with the bass in a really cool way. It just like kind of, I think we really like the, the, like on like heavy rhythm sections, especially for the bass and the guitar to almost sound like one instrument and like can't really tell where one starts and the other, the ends. And like that can sometimes be the glue. Um, and that second position can be really cool because it's very scooped. So there isn't necessarily a lot of like harmonic information there, but it's a very cool character. So if you layer that with like, you know, full bridge humbucker, like you're kind of getting the best of both worlds and you can like adjust the relative levels to, to get the character that you want. Octavers. Do you use octavers? Is that the, uh, or is it different than that? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, like if it's on the Axe Axefex has a good octaver. I've got some pedals. Live, we use Axefex, so we're just using the live. Uh, the, so the, the pitch, the pitch block, the pitch block. Yeah, it's such a satisfying effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to play riffs on. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it just feels like uh, vindicating. There, there's <laughs> this. There's this one scene that Misha created where it's like. Maybe you could talk about it, Misha, where it's like, it, it is the octave block, but it just sounds like real fucking nasty. Yeah. It just sounds huge and nasty. I and think, I don't, I think I, it I don't really understand the patch. as well. Like, it's an octave uh, up fuzz, but then there's also a pitch block. There's just a lot of gain. Like, it's a really just gross sounding thing, but it's kind of, it's kind of like Kurt Ballou inspired, like, you know. Nice. Uh, uh, just, just trying to be like, because like a lot of what we do is like so tight and clean. It's just kind of opposite of that. We started to like throw more of those sections in just, just, I don't know, just to, to shake things up a little bit. And it's got an interesting character to it for all on it. Or like two of us are on it. Like it just sounds real huge with the bass. All right. Question from Stephen Michael Horton. Why in God's name do you have so many tunings for your songs? Mark? Because of Mark. <laughs> <laughs> he like shows up with a tuning. We're like, nope. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> fuck that. And then he shows us the riff, and we're like, oh, "God damn it, fine." He's doing. So he's, Mark's <laughs> doing this new thing where he wants to like. He wants like two people to play in one tuning, and then he plays in an entirely different tuning. And Man, he keeps you're trying an to. Asshole. He keeps trying to sell us on the idea, and I think one of these days we're gonna. I just break. think. I just think we would gain so many new fans if we did it that way, guys. <laughs> I think the key to unlocking stadiums is like, you know, yeah. two weird open tunings and an eight string on stage. Yeah. Stadium unlocked. Yeah. We get a little achievement notification. I have a serious answer. I, I've kind of alluded to this earlier, I think, but having like bringing a new tuning to the table starts it, it kind of pushes you outside of your comfort zone and then you try to figure out how to how to extend your comfort zone into to encompass this new tuning and that's always kind of a fun challenge at least for me that's dude that you said it right there and then when you're forced to like learn new moves and rely solely on your ear and not any longer on sort of patterns and shapes that you identify visually on your fretboard uh, that I don't know. It puts me in a different mode when I'm writing music or writing riffs. It's like I, I, I get to chase what I hear or I get to explore like, damn, I don't know what this is going to sound like. I'll try this move. And it just becomes this really exciting process of almost like rediscovering the instrument in a way. Yeah. Consider that our two longest songs were both directly influenced and inspired by exploring brand new tunings to us, mm -hmm. you know, race car and reptile. Um, yeah. And it's like it's almost like you're literally hearing us explore these tunings and discover. Oh, like you could do this, you could do that. That's interesting. And some of the moves work. Some of them work in ways you wouldn't expect. Some of them don't. You know, it's just that 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 I think can really uh, just if you're if you've got writer's block, that could be one of the best ways to to overcome it. So I think that's part of the reason. Awesome. Here's one from Instagram from George Lever. Oh, George Lever. George he did, Lever. Uh, he did Loathe. Yeah. yeah, he's a good, he's a really yeah, good yeah. producer. Sleep token yeah. too. Oh, he's, yeah, yeah he, he's he's awesome. Yeah. He fucking rules. He's a good dude. He got shit sounding nasty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said, "What's the best song name that never made it?" Shit splitter. <laughs> shit splitter. <laughs> shit splitter Is would not real? have gotten nominated. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great song. Name. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's the one to beat. There's too many to choose from, man. There's some that we definitely can't say on this podcast. <laughs> Can I talk about that one? Clench about Hibachi or Shitsplater? We name a song Clench Hibachi, but it's just like clench your butt cheeks. That's the story. <laughs> well done, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Thank awesome. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I was like, Pen, Pen Island was a great one. Pen Island is, is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Penis land. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. We have like song name lists. <laughs> uh, this, we, we had a, a song that um, that was called uh, Fahawa Gods. Oh, yeah, that got that got uh, vetoed. And the thing is, is it's, it's a, a Homestar Runner reference, a very old internet cartoon. And Misha wanted that song name to stay so bad. So and, bad. And I, I like, the, like the child in me wanted it to stay so bad. But then I was like, oh, man, like nobody's going to talk about this song because nobody's going to know how to say it. Yeah, everyone's going <laughs> to think it's like fuckwads or something. <laughs> yeah. I felt, I felt like I was so close to winning that one, too. And I lost. <laughs> there's, oh well. there's Raisemary's Bobby. Oh, yeah. Raisemary's Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Raisemary's Bobby is pretty good. I'm looking at my song name list right now. Oh, there's, there's Warl Garble. <laughs> I think it's like a dude's name. <laughs> Warl Garble. I've always wanted uh, Entree the Giant. Oh, yeah, Entree. <laughs> I'm looking through the names right now. We have song name lists because we just want to laugh. When we see these songs. And, and and a lot of these just are not funny to anyone other than us, like because we've gone through hours of sleep deprivation while we're working on these things. So then we name them when we're completely exhausted and we're cackling at the computer at like four in the morning. So, you know, to to most people these aren't funny, but to us it's like the funniest thing. But we're pretty damn funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Kirk Wells is wondering, well, what does the average day look like for you guys? How much of your day is focused on music? Not a lot for me anymore. It's all cars now. Depends. Depends on, uh, uh, you know, if we're working on an album or not. You know, like me and Misha just finished up solo albums. So you'd wake up and work on it for a couple hours and go about your day doing your other hobbies. But, you know, Mark probably has a different experience. There were a handful of months last year, like during the onset of the pandemic when I would just, uh, and I kind of want to try this out more, um, is I would just make a huge pot of coffee and bring it upstairs and start working. It's like start recording and writing, like treat it like a job, take a lunch break and go have lunch with my wife downstairs. I think we talked about this on the previous podcast was like, and then come back to it after lunch and just keep writing and uh, doing that without the goal of like even finishing a song or finishing a section, just write to write. Now, I haven't done so much of that lately. I think just because we finished this session and I'm feeling honestly a little bit burnt out creatively, but I make it back to it. L- lately, I've just been playing a lot of video games, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> McBriggs401 on Instagram is wondering, do you like dogs? You like dads? Do, Dags. do we like dogs? They're all right. I like dags. Dags? I like dogs. <laughs> They're all right. Yeah. Benjamin808 is wondering, opinions on bands, quote unquote, sounding the same with drum samples and amp sims. Eh, let them have their fun. Who cares? I agree. Good music is good music. 
That's just the packaging. I think too many people make too big of a deal out of all that shit. I do too. Just when you hear when you hear something that's when you hear a song that that really resonates with you, I, at least me and you know I'm I'm very aware of production and makes and stuff like that. But when you hear something that hits, you're not thinking like, oh, I recognize that snare sample. It's like who cares? Like <laughs> music's sick. And if that's what you're if that's if that's what you're hearing, then maybe it's just because the music's not going. I don't think it's a means to an end. You're just trying to get the ideas that are they're in your head out into you know, whatever format you can. And if you have the tools and if that's what they want to hear, then that's what they want to hear. Makes for good internet arguing though. Right. It certainly does. Yeah. You know, what's funny about the internet arguing when it comes to music and gear, especially with gear, especially in recording. And I mean, I guess so with guitar gear too, is you get people arguing about shit they've never even tried in real life. Yep. Mm-hmm. Feeling really passionate about it too. Yeah. It's like I've said with a lot of this stuff, it's like, what is there even to argue about? Like, you're not going to convince. There's no logical point to argue then. So you, all you're going to do is just yell. There's not going to be any progress. It'll just be time wasted. So it's not really worth the discussion at that point. I like your stance. Question from Raven Popescu, which is, uh, do you guys plan on focusing on increasing the rate you add artists to your label at? Or was that more for you to support your own projects? Or are you just waiting for the right bands? I'd say we're waiting for the right bands. I mean, we, we try to, you know, it is a vehicle for our own projects and stuff. We, you know, we, we, we like using it for that, but if we find an artist that we believe in, you know, we'll definitely consider it, you know? Yeah. The goal of the label is not to like amass like a ton of artists or anything like that. Really the main goal was just to have a vehicle to put out our, our projects and then we can help out our friends or things that we believe in, but there's no, there's no massive rush with that. We're not trying to take over the world with three dot or anything like that. I didn't think you were. David Dobbin is wondering, what would you consider to be the critical key elements to pursue a successful music career nowadays? Show up on time. Luck. And <laughs> show yeah. up on time. God, that like eliminates like 90% of people right there, right? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> when you say something like show up on time, it sounds like a joke, but it's not because stuff like that is so rare, actually. It's yeah. the only reason I, I've been able to be successful in this band. I didn't join this band having a bunch of like musical talent. It was something <laughs> that I cultivated, like hanging out around these guys who are good musicians. But I showed up. I showed up early, and I, you know, made sure that these guys could count on me for stuff. You know, so that's why I say that it's not like a glib remark or anything. I really mean it. And if you do that, or if you fail to do that, it's probably going to bleed over into the way you do other things. You know. If you fail to do that, you get kicked off tours. So, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. Or you don't get asked, like, say you're late with a mix. Uh, better be fucking awesome. Or you might not get called back by that band or that A&R guy or whatever. There's a lot of talent in this industry. So you got to be on it. Because if you, yeah, if, you, if you're difficult to work with or you're not delivering stuff on time or you're not on time in general, like, they'll just go to the person who is. Yeah, that's probably a pretty important one. Sometimes I've noticed that people who might not be quite as skilled, I mean, within reason, within reason, of course, but sometimes someone will get all the gigs or all the work who's not as skilled as somebody else because they're just that much more reliable and easy to deal with. Yep. It's a a business of relationships and all that. So the easier you are to work with, more people like you, you know, again, just be be a good person. Just give a shit. 
work hard. <laughs> like so much, so much of it is just and simple luck. stuff, stuff that sounds so simple. And it's like, well, if it's so simple, why is it so fucking hard to find people that are like that? <laughs> you know? Well, it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, I guess you're right. I, I would, I would equate it to like, it's like first job out of high school type of principles that are supposed to be trained into, you know what I mean? Like your first job out of high school, what are you taught to, 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 to be on time, to be accountable? It's like, these are things that you'd think would be common sense for, uh, for most people. But, uh, yeah, you, people get into this young bands start when they're kids. And, uh, like we were talking about earlier, it's not a very kind of, um, regulated organized industry. Uh, so you get a lot of people not really holding those values near and dear to their hearts. So something I think we've always prided ourselves on being. Okay. Last question. This is from Kyle Norwell, which is, uh, what was the hardest thing for each of you guys to overcome to get to where you're at today? Hmm. Hmm. It could be answered. I mean, it's a good question. It could be answered. It, 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 it's a bit, it's a bit, uh, broad. Is it just, it just one thing. It's like, but I, I, I can like in what something. context, like musically or life or like, like that's why I have trouble with those kinds of questions. By the way, when I ask a question like that, and then I start commenting on the question, it's just cause, uh, sometimes I think that commenting on the question is more interesting than actually answering it. But, uh, it's, uh I feel like when people are asking about that one thing, they're kind of like, uh, the kinds of people who think about getting a big break or ah, having the go. one, you know, the one, uh, that one situation that'll change it all. Right. Like the one overcoming the one big challenge. Uh, if I just do this one record as a mixer, I'm going to be set. Yeah. I think that's a mindset that like, at least today and people in the scene should really just drop because yes. I've told people, and I've said this before, like, you know, periphery has not been an overnight success. It's been a slow and steady thing. It's something that I actively chase. I think slow and steady is the way to go. It may not be as sort of, you know, instantly gratifying, but like it's something that you can rely on. We have a solid foundation. We have a solid fan base and you don't want overnight success. Here's why you're going to be faced with problems that you are completely out of your depth on. Whereas periphery, whatever problems that we face and my businesses, whatever problems we face, because it's always been a slow rise. It may be just right outside of our wheelhouse and we can adjust from it and learn. But it's never like 10 steps above and we have no, we're just so out of our depth that we just have no way to handle it. That's where you see a lot of things getting mismanaged and overnight success and you don't know what to do and you drop into, into nowhere. You know, I think slow and steady is the way to go. Even the things that seem like big breaks for us were not. They were just incremental steps, small incremental steps. And those are the things that, that I think you should be focusing on. I don't know that I have any sort of single defining moment, you know. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't think of any, any one thing. I don't know if you guys have anything, but like, to me, it's just been all these small gradual steps that have slowly built to something. For me, it's, it's been kind of learning how to identify your own shortcomings and kind of being able to look at yourself objectively and not just assuming that the way you're behaving or the way that you handle problems is the best way and trying to kind of not look at people in your like your circle as kind of like people you're competing with but people that you can learn from and i've tried to take that i I learned that pretty early on in this group and i you know obviously it's always been a work in progress it's something you're never going to get to the finish line on really um and if you think that you are at the finish line then you like 
you really haven't gotten the point of that. You know, it's just something you do for the rest of your life. And, you know, I think that that's, that's what's helped me kind of grow and like be able to assimilate myself in this group and, and kind of try to be the best version of myself at that moment in time. Yeah. I mean, I can't really say any better than you did Jake, uh, just now. And like, yeah, sort of looking at this career as something that I want to be around 20 years from now, you know, maybe not in its current form, but there's definitely things that I want to strive towards and work towards having this long game mentality of like, let's do things not for now. Let's do things not for next week, not for next month. But with this long game in mind, I feel like, and that's not a mentality that I've always had, you know? Uh, and I, I think being around these guys and seeing how, how seriously they take it has, uh, that's really transferred over to me too. So you didn't have the long-term mentality is what you're saying? I mean, for a long time, I was just, I was just, I, it was just kind of lucky to be there mentality, which I still have. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't, I don't think I've lost that, but if you hold on to that and let that be at the forefront of everything that you do, as opposed to like, Hey, what moves can we make? Or can I make that are smart for whatever long-term vision I have for myself or for ourselves? Um, I think a healthy balance of those two uh, is is something that I you know I, I I aspire to keep at all times. You know, it's a good answer. Way better than my answer. <laughs> no, your answer was great too. Those were all really good answers. It's interesting, Mark, what you said about the long term thinking. I think that that's something that a lot of artists have a hard time with because you kind of have to be in the moment to create, right? You can't be thinking about. You can't be thinking about anything else. I just think that creativity and long-term thinking, they come from two different parts of the brain, I think. And so some people are just not really wired to think long-term, but uh, sometimes people who think too long-term will forget about the magic of the whole situation. So I think it's a great answer. Focus on both. So anyways, this time for real, mm -hmm. thank you guys for uh, coming on and hanging out. Absolutely, absolutely. And thanks uh, to everyone for all the questions. There's some really good ones. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. Thanks for letting us take up so much of your time with this. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's just an excuse to hang out with all you guys, so I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> true, true that. This, is, this isn't like a podcast. This is like hanging out with... Hanging out with your pals. Yeah. <laughs>